Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Brody Utley, who is a guitar player and songwriter most well-known for his work in the band Rivers of Nile, as well as a content collaborator for Gear Gods. Beginning in 2010, Rivers of Nile has released three studio albums, the most recent of which, Where Owls Know My Name, found chart positions for the U.S. Hard Rock, U.S. Rock, and U.S. Indie charts. I've also had Brody as a guest on my other podcast, the URM Podcast, and we even featured Rivers of Nile on Nail the Mix with uh, Carson Slovak back in June of 2019, I believe. Brody is a killer, killer guitar player and a really cool guy, and that's why I'm very stoked to have him on. I introduce you, Brody Utley. All right, Brody Utley, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Hello. You know, before we get into it, Chris uh, Kelly wants to know why you hate green text bubbles. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Damn, this is instantly political. <laughs> no. Oh, shit, it's political? No, no, it's not political. It's just like, oh, okay. it's just the, the, green, the green text, blue text thing. I don't know. I just, uh, you know, when my friends convert to to iphone i just feel the need to to text them a whole lot more you know uh whereas like if it's uh if it's green text you know we can just stay on messenger that's fine with me <laughs> well with green you can always pretend you never got it that's also true and you know it's not so much the green text blue text thing it's just the fact that like i can't send a video to somebody who's green text land without it you know looking all bit crushed and horrible and same with them they can't send to me it have you guys had that problem with across oh, yeah. the, the android iphone thing I, that drives me nuts like they'll send me something and it'll be it'll look like something from the early internet you know that's just completely crushed down in in quality so yeah uh chris kelly thanks shout out man Th thanks for uh, <laughs> i've got another one from him too oh, okay keep let's keep going <laughs> yeah uh why do you hate social tier hunting what? Oh my God. How much, how much do you guys talk? We're friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do hate it. Can we define what it is first? Sure. It's when, when people really only are interested in talking to you, if you can further whatever agenda it is that they have for their career and they don't actually really take an interest in what's going on in your life. I mean, I've had 
Oh man, this is brutal. This is a brutal start. I've <laughs> we don't fuck around. No, I guess you. I mean, I've had it happen, you know, a few times where I've been talking to people and someone who's who might be described as as being at a, a, a higher of a higher value than me in this whole scene will will pass by and instantly I'm invisible and that that sh- that just drives me crazy because I don't know I I guess I've never cared about stuff like that. And, and you probably don't do that to other people. No, I mean, I just, I, I like, I just have my friends and they're my friends cause I like them and because we have similar interests and, and that's pretty much it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't have fun playing that game and I don't play that game. And it bums me out when people who are close to me do play that game. It's just, it's a, it's a sad shot. Look, Chris described it as you're at Nam and you're talking to somebody and then John Petrucci walks by and suddenly mid sentence that person leaves your conversation and floats over to him like a fly attracted to shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how I describe it. Actually. I paraphrase what he said. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, and I guess it really just depends on what, what your personality type is. I'm 100% not the kind of guy that would go up and introduce myself to someone if I haven't met them before or have had some kind of, you know, interaction with them before. I'm just, I'm just not that guy, which is why I've never, I've never been to Nam because to me, that's what that whole thing is, is just, I know it's a great, you know, opportunity to meet people and, and make contacts and everything like that. But the whole thing just gives me like an insane amount of anxiety just because, you know, while obviously like most people are not like this, I know that there are a good deal of people there that are, are only there, you know, for them, for themselves really. And, and I don't know, that bums me out. So instead of participating in it, I've I've just kind of withdrawn myself from it thus far. I don't blame you. You get to hang out with some cool, cool friends though. Like you'll see some friends that you've not seen on the road for a long time. Of course. And that would, that would be the main reason that I would go is to, to see all of my friends at once, because what other opportunity do you get to, you know, every dude that you've ever been on tour with is all of a sudden in the same room. Like that sounds amazing to me, you know, and, and there's, there's, you know, parties and everything like that. So, I mean, that's all that stuff sounds great, but the, the social side of it with, you know, meeting new people and, you know, getting up, getting a foot in the door and whatever it's, that's just, it's not, it's not me. It's it, that whole thing is, is very uncomfortable and scary to me. So that's, that's, you know, probably what Chris is talking about. <laughs> I don't think that shit really works that well either anyways. Yeah. I mean, I think people can see, see through it a lot, of, a lot of times. And I don't know, maybe I'm overly cautious with it, you know, because I, I have, I have seen some pretty brutal interactions between people. So I, I don't know. It's, it, but I think you're right. I don't think, I don't think people generally fall for it anymore. I don't think so. I think they sniff the fakeness out the way that a drug dog sniffs your suitcases. Like they just, <laughs> it's in the musician DNA to have this bullshit filter, I think. And they can tell, like, I mean, that's why we have the term punisher. Yeah. <laughs> People don't like that. As far as my experience of NAM or any networking situation goes, the only relationships that have ever translated into anything in real life were the ones that just happened organically. Yeah, totally. And, you know, most of my closest friends in in the industry are friends that I've been through rough times with, mostly on tour, since that's usually what I'm doing. You know, and I feel I feel like going through experiences with people, 
you know, out on tour, especially, especially difficult situations and bad situations kind of just strengthens that, that bond of friendship. So, so, so some of my closest friends are guys that I've been, you know, tour, I've toured with numerous times and we've been through, been through the shit together. So that's like what name, name me one bad situation you're thinking of. Well, I mean, I guess the dudes, the dudes in, in my band, I mean, we've been through, we've been the same lineup for, I guess, six years now at this point and we've been grinding it out on the road for so long you know we've the vans crashed you know we've been you know we've had to cancel things and i guess i guess just like being able to have those kind of dark times to share with each other i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this it bonds you for sure yeah this is this is a super deep uh super deep podcast so far and i'm like Man, I'm just like reaching for answers here, man. Well, I have a better question for you. Okay. <laughs> what do you hate about people who get mad at Fender for making metal guitars? Ooh, I like did you <laughs> I like this one. <laughs> I I mean, they should just shut up. I mean, like, <laughs> I think I th- I think that I think that guitar that you're talking about is is fantastic and I left a little little comment on the Fender Custom Shop Instagram and got yelled at by some people. What guitar was it? It was uh the new uh Chris Garza from from Suicide Silence. Ah, the 7-string Strat. Yeah, yeah, it's a tw- it's a 26 and a half inch scale 7-string Strat which is f- because we tune to drop F sharp, 26 and a half inches for scale length is bare minimum for us. And uh, I would love to have a seven string, 26 and a half inch scale Fender Stratocaster in my collection because the Strat is my favorite guitar of all time. So I just, you know, left a little little comment on there like, hey, you guys should, uh, you guys should put this fucker in production, you know? And uh, <laughs> some people did not agree with me. They, they said... Uh, were they metalheads or the Dads. Fender purists? Well, the, I think my comment got a pretty, it got like a lot of likes. Even the custom shop dude who built the guitar liked my comment. But then there was a couple of purists that were saying like, there's plenty of other companies that are already ruining the guitar by putting seven strings on them. We don't need to this to carry oh, over to, to Fender or whatever. Those guys. The, the funny thing about it is they're probably fans of Vi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No way. They're not fans of Vi. They they listen to blues. Yeah. Hey, I mean, I, I listen to blues and AL, I know I, don't. I know you're not a fan of the blues. So <laughs> but uh but hey, come on, like this the seven string is the new six string. Let's 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 move on here, you know? I don't know. I, I agree. If they want to hate, go for nine strings. Yeah, for sure. I mean yeah. I I wouldn't know what to do with a nine string. But yeah, let, let's let's do sevens first, though. Let's let's see some PRS uh, core line seven strings or some Fender baritone scale seven strings. That would be fantastic. They've been around for over twenty years now and been part of uh, part of metal and rock longer than that mainstream. actually. Way longer, longer. Yeah, like twenty five or twenty six years. It's uh, since nineteen ninety, actually. Wow. Yeah, because uh, okay then the first real production model was when Steve Vai. Played it on Passion and Warfare. Corn and Morbid Angel made it popular in like 94, but still same era. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about running a guitar company, but with the little that I know about how business and, and consumers work and how the music scene works, I would think that having, 
you know, including a seven string guitar in your in your lineup of things that people could buy at this point would would be a good idea for business. But like I said, what do I know? I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the fact that Fender also owns Jackson. Yeah. Uh, Charvel, who released seven string. So they probably just didn't want to do it at that point. Yeah, that's true. For me, though, personally, seeing a seeing a Fender logo on on a seven string that I knew had a like a close to a baritone scale, I guess. Uh, that was just a cool thing. I thought it was sick. I thought it was a great guitar. And, uh, and I left a little comment that said, Hey, you guys should, <laughs> should try try this out for real. And, and I got, I got yelled at, so I'll never do that again, I guess. <laughs> to be fair, I also want it. Yeah. It's, so it's very, <laughs> very cool guitar. What's your problem with, uh, people that play headless guitars? <laughs> do you just have like a text thread from Chris? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, nothing. I have no problem with people that play headless guitars. <laughs> I just think I look like an idiot when I play them. It's exactly my problem. Exactly. I'm six, almost six two, I guess. I have this big floofy hair. And when I play a headless guitar, it looks like I'm playing a ukulele. And we're out here playing metal, not Jason Mraz covers. I don't know. It's just it's just for me. For me, I think it, it like I'll play one sitting down. Uh, I think they're great for the studio. But I, I I don't want to play one live because I, I look I look silly and I think especially when you when you wear them up way high it, 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 it like turn, it, it it turns up the the shotness factor you know exponentially when you wear it up even higher so I don't have a problem with people that play headless guitars I just they're just not they're not for me because I, I look they're like just a, not cool are they eh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe not I don't know. I'd never play one live. I did it once. Those are the dorkiest looking guitars on earth. Yeah, I did it for one tour and I saw pictures and I was like, you know what? That's not a look for me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no problem with people that play them. Just, I think I look like a boxy dork when I, when I play headless guitars, but that's just me. Do you play pointy guitars? Uh, I don't. I mostly stuck with either the super strap body style or kind of like, well, just okay. like double cutaway style, I guess. Yeah, not really pointy. So like classy guitars. Yeah, although I, I am a fan of Wes Houck obviously has that super sick uh, Iceman, which I think is a very cool guitar. Uh, I've seen the like the Explorer slash Destroyer body style done pretty well recently. Sean from Thy Art is Murder has a seven string LACS Destroyer, which is really, really sick. So yeah, I do like pointing guitars. I've just always sort of stuck with the traditional double cutaway thing, I guess. Just no headless. <laughs> no, I do have, I do have a Vader. I just don't tour with it. It's, it's just, it's a good, it's a good couch guitar, I guess. So do you have any stock trading expertise to share? <laughs> Are we recording right now? I, I, this yeah. is a joke. Uh, yeah. Stock, stock, stock trading. No, you know what? I don't. But if you were to contact Mike DiMaria, who is uh, in Chris's other band, he's, he's my financial, mine and Chris's financial advisor. And whenever we we go down a uh, dollar fifty or whatever. We send him an angry message and ask him what the hell is going on, you know. So, yeah, uh, learning lots of new things uh, during during quarantine. All right, I guess uh, I'll just ask you this: Let's talk about Joe Bonamassa. All right, and what his life must be like. Dude, I 
I could talk to you about that all all day long. I think that guy. I think that guy has one of the one of the coolest setups in guitar music for sure. I mean, I don't know. I know you're not a big blues guy, but there's just there's just something about he's got a house full of. Honestly, I've never even really heard him, so I'm looking it up right now. He basically sounds like Eric Johnson if you like crossed him with Clapton. He's a bluesier. He's like a bluesier Eric Johnson, but he buys you know 1959 Les Pauls and then he takes him on tour. That's his whole thing. He tours yeah. with super expensive classic gear, and he has a house that's just full of gear. He has uh, a house in California. Uh, it's called, he calls it Nerdville. He's even got a sign on it, which I hope you can't see it from the road or Google Maps because that would be like a bullseye, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I found it. How old is he? He's got to be in his it. 50s, 60s, maybe. No, no con- way. He's in his 40s for sure. There's no way he's, yeah, there's no way he's in his his 60s. Absolutely not. Maybe his early 50s, but I feel like he might be in his mid mid 40s. He's just been playing since he was 13. So he seems That's like why. he's been around forever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I used to work in a uh, in a guitar shop in London that um, exclusively dealt with uh, forty three, forty three, <laughs> with vintage equipment. So I remember him buying a bunch of different things from that shop that the oh, normal really? human couldn't really afford. <laughs> yeah, holy shit! I'm looking at his collection right now. Jesus Christ! Yeah, he he. There's a video. There's one video on YouTube where he takes you on a tour of his of his house that's literally just full of insanely expensive vintage gear. And I think it's awesome because, you know, I follow him on Instagram and he just posted videos of him sitting on his porch, drinking some whiskey, smoking a cigar, playing, a, you know, a, 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 the first year 51 Strat. Is that the first year for the Strat? I can't remember. But, you know, playing uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of guitars, you know, just sitting on his porch, just hanging out buying more gear, playing the gear in his house that he lives in by himself with all this gear. It's kind of sad, actually, I guess, when I'm putting it that way, but it's, uh, it's, I think it's awesome. (laughs) What's the sad part? The sad part where you live in a house by yourself full of gear and you just play guitar alone, I guess. (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean, oh yeah, it's a 54, by the way. Some people just like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess some, (laughs) some people are, (laughs) I'm just going to say you don't get to that level by being normal. No, I, I think Joe Bonamas is sick. I think he, he catches a lot of heat for being like the dad, the dad guitar guy. You know, he just, he's, he's the dad, he's the dad rock guy. Every, everyone who doesn't know a lot about Joe Bonamassa just kind of tags him with that. But I think he's a great player uh, and I'm super, super impressed by his collection. I would, I would love to be on that level one day with, with my, with my collection, but it, it just, I don't, I don't see it happening. I mean, that, fif- <laughs> that 59 Les Paul, if the burst was intact, that's at least $300,000. Oh yeah. It's, it's insane. And he's got, he's got like four or five of them that he, you huh. know, tours with. I th- I'm pretty sure he has Peter Green from the Fleetwood Mac's original 59 uh, Les Paul, which is dubbed the Grail because it's, you know, according to vintage guitar enthusiasts, it's it is the guitar. That's that is what a guitar should sound like. Uh, apparently, I don't know if he owns it or if he had it for a while, but he. That's the thing about him is that people in like his fans know that he's a collector and that he appreciates classic gear like that. So they'll just like let him have their their guitar that's been in their family for 
three generations to take it on tour. I don't know. I think that, I think his whole, his whole thing is cool. When he could clearly afford to rent it. Yeah, definitely. He does these things called guitar safaris where him and his tech, Mike Hickey, who ironically was in Carcass, him and Mike Hickey will go out and, you know, go on these guitar safaris where they just basically scout Craigslist and, you know, hit up, hit up people and and go to their houses and check and see what they've got going on gear wise. They'll, they'll go out for, to buy like a, you know, a Gibson Firebird. But while they're there, they're thinking like, oh, well maybe they have other stuff. And then he might end up walking out of a house with four guitars, you know, just like, boom, like four guitars that are all over the $20,000 mark, just like walking out of the house with them. It's it's wild. (laughs) That's another life, isn't it? That's just insane. I didn't realize he was that well off. I obviously I knew about his habit of collecting shit, but I didn't think it was that bad where he could just afford to take four, like $80,000 worth of guitars and just be like, huh, I'll do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he, there's, there's a video of him telling that exact story. He's just like, he, he said his friend was with him and he's like, we're going on a guitar safari. And what, what you see next is going to be really fast and really confusing, but I just need you to follow along and just like walked out of this dude's house with like five guitars. But you know, he's, obviously seen a ton of success. I mean, ton of success in his professional career. I, as far as I know, he doesn't have kids. He just loves guitar, loves gear, loves playing guitar and wants to fill a house full of gear. So good for him, I guess. Fuck kids. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a fan. Not a fan of kids at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any? No. <laughs> I have cats. I have cats. We have cats. I, I hate cats too, but I hate kids more yeah i mean <laughs> cats cats are quieter at least you could put cats outside yeah i mean our i mean cats you can put kids cats, outside too it just you could, probably wouldn't go down well damn yeah i mean i'm about to say stuff that i shouldn't say <laughs> this, on the podcast <laughs> this is a hot podcast so far we, we yeah we're, we're not going we to swing why do you hate uh resanding and painting uh lawn chairs <laughs> <laughs> no we're not, okay, we're, fine. we're not doing that one. <laughs> All right. Well, that said, let's talk about quarantine. Uh, how's your gym habit? Good. I used to, I used to be a four to five day a week at the gym kind of guy and the gyms all closed down, of course. And for probably the first two to three months, well, I get, whenever, like until about three weeks ago, I guess I was a complete sack of shit. And I didn't do anything <laughs> physically. Uh, so my mom uh, was nice enough to get me a jump rope. Uh, that's, a, that's a nice gift. Yeah. I, I My birthday was a little while ago and she told me that she wanted to get me a few little things for working out at home for my birthday. And that was one of the things. So that kind of just kicked me in my ass to, uh, to get moving. But yeah, I've been working out in the basement a little bit. And uh, doing jump rope for cardio, which is like horrible, and and I don't think I've ever experienced the the kind of chest tightness that I get after after jumping rope. Uh, looks looks hilarious. I I mean I'm sure, but it really uh, that's been kicking my ass. So yeah, I've been I've been trying to do that like four four days a week just to have enforce some kind of you know routine as far as my health goes uh, while this is all happening. Jump rope is insane. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't really ever consider it, uh, an actual good form of, of exercise, but I have a shitty lower back. So whenever I run, I always get like weird back pains and yeah. So, so jumping rope 
was kind of, even though I guess it's technically not low impact, it, uh, it was something that I just started doing and it kicks my ass and I'm totally winded afterwards and sweating like a pig. So I guess, I guess it's working. (laughs) How long do you go for? I'll usually do 25 like double jumps. So it's like the half speed jumps. And then I'll, once I hit 25, I'll do one jump for each swing and I'll go until I basically run out of breath and I'll do five or six sets of those. That's pretty intense. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, and I do that after my, my resistance workout. So it's, I'm already pretty, pretty shot, but then I pick the jump rope up and I do it outside too, because in our basement, it's like a low ceiling. So I can't jump rope down there. So I'm just standing out on our front walkway. And right now it's, you know, in the nineties here. So I'm just standing out in the sun, jumping ropes, sweating. And, uh, so yeah, that's been great, but I think it's good for me. Good for the, good for the mental health and and good for the body. You know, what do you, what's your resistance program? So right now it's, I have some, some resistance bands, but I haven't really been using them. I just have this adjustable bench bench in the basement and two 30 pound dumbbells. That's literally all I have, but I'm able to do pretty much a full body workout every time I'm down there. So I'll do 15 reps of four sets of incline bench press. Then I'll do 20. I'll take the two 30 pound dumbbells, put them on my shoulders and I'll do 30, uh, 20 squats, four sets of those. Then I'll do some form of, of either deadlift or, uh, bent over, uh, rows for the back. Then I do uh, tricep extensions, either hammer curls or just regular curls and some kind of shoulder exercise. And then I'll go out and jump rope. So I, I'll usually change up, I'll change up what exercise I'm doing every day. So if one day I do hammer curls on the dumbbells, the next day I'll do like regular curls. Just like if I do deadlifts one day, I'll do bent over rows the next day. I just try to like stagger my, my workouts since I'm not really operating on any kind of actual, you know, good, like super sick plan. This is very like minimal. So I'm just doing what I can, I guess. Is it basically just maintenance? Yeah. I just felt horrible, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, because I was, I went from working out to doing nothing for several months. And it was just to the point where I was like, this is, I just feel like garbage. So I had to do something. So yeah, it is basically just maintenance. I don't really see myself gaining any muscle doing this stuff. It's just really to wake my system up, I guess. And it's, it's honestly like more of a mental thing for me. I feel better when I'm doing stuff that's good for my body than when I'm not, I guess it's, so I guess it's, it's more of a mental thing, but there's obviously physical advantages and jumping rope is good for the heart. And, you know, they say, they say that, you know, doing cardio during this time is, is good as a preventative measure for the whole COVID thing. And, you know, I've been taking all my vitamins and stuff, just trying to be as healthy as I can with what resources I have, I guess. Yeah. I've been doing a shit ton of cardio. Yeah. 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 Trying to increase that lung capacity. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, I've listened, like I said before, I've listened to a couple of these episodes and I, I remember you on one of them or a couple of them talking about how you, you got swine flu back in, back when that was, <laughs> when, when that was yeah. happening. Yeah. So I bet you're, I bet it's fun. Yeah. I bet it, I bet it was. So I bet you're, 
yeah, taking extra care this time since you got a, a taste of that. Yeah, uh, it's something I don't ever want to repeat, though. I will say that 10 days of morphine was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there's any silver lining, yeah. it was 10 days of morphine in a bed. Besides that, it was one of the most horrific things I've ever experienced. And this uh, COVID sounds kind of like it. Yeah. Like the symptoms, what everyone is saying happens sounds just like it. So, uh, yeah, I've been uh, staying the fuck away from people and doing like three hours a day of cardio yeah. um, and then doing breath work and stuff like that. Everything I can. I'll probably get it anyways and die, but at least I'm trying. <laughs> you went out swinging, dude. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I, I think I think that, uh, that that's all been real good for me during this time. And I even, you know, I'm not doing it now because I... I, I didn't want to buy the subscription because I'm a cheap piece of shit, but uh, the, I got that Calm app and I uh, I was doing meditating for, for a little while. I was I was trying to meditate. Financial advisor advised against the $9 a month. Oh yeah, I guess it was, it, it does break down to that, but I saw like, like $89 a year. I was like, that's like almost as much as the Slate subscription, you know? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was like, pass, but I should probably, should probably just do that because- uh, I'm a generally a pretty anxious guy and I, I, I've never really gotten on board with any kind of meditation or spirituality kind of stuff. And, but like ignoring all that, you know, all the, all the noise around, you know, that kind of stuff with all the new age medicine, whatever, just the actual, you know, active, uh, meditating for the few times that I did it, it seemed like it was a good thing for me. It just kind of, reset my brain and, and brought me into just that moment, I guess, because as I said, I'm inherently an anxious person. So I'm never really truly in the moment. I'm always thinking of like the next thing that I have to do to complete the next thing after that so that I can get to the end goal. Or I'm thinking about, man, I really shouldn't have done this thing. Cause if I didn't do that, then this wouldn't have happened. So that's just like how my brain works all the time. And, uh, and I think that the meditation was good for turning that off. And I think that, uh, exercise, it does. exercise is good for turning that off too. Yeah. Same here. That's, uh, the main benefits I get from the amount of exercise I do is, uh, it shuts off that demon yeah. basically. Uh, and people are like, isn't that a ton of exercise? It's like, that's what it takes. Yeah. Basically mm -hmm. I need to do that much, uh, in order for my mind to quiet down and the meditation definitely, if you were, I bet you, if you were to stick to it for like 30 days or 60 days, uh, your anxiety would go way down for sure. I definitely need to do that. I think even my girlfriend noticed while I was doing it, that there was just for the short period of time that I was doing it, that there was like a visible like change in, in my general mood, I guess. So yeah, it was, it was, it was helpful. So maybe I should just, maybe I should just do it. You know, maybe I should just get that subscription. Yeah, I think you should. It's not the only one. There's another, the one I'm using, it's called 10%. 10%. It needs to be guided for me. Cause I can't just, it is guided. okay. Yeah. That's the most important thing because, you know, people say like, you don't need an app, but like I absolutely do because I can't just sit in a room and be like, well, now what am I supposed to do? You know, I need <laughs> someone in my ear telling me, now do, do this, you know, like I, that, that's part of it for me. <laughs> now imagine the headless guitar. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for both of you. Like, so I, I live in the middle of nowhere and there's some really nice country walks and me and my girlfriend do it. It's probably like one to two hour walk, but every single time mm -hmm. I go to do it, 
I feel an overwhelming sense of guilt because of the amount of work that I have to do at my house. Um, whether that's work related to what I do at Riff Hard or writing some music. So how do you guys get over that feeling? Like, yeah, it's gone while I'm on the walk, but then I get back and then crippling anxiety again from how much work I have to do. I don't get any anxiety from time that I spent exercising. Maybe in the past, but then I decided that if anyone has a problem with it, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> So basically I made the exercise more important to me than anything else. Okay. URM and riff hard can fuck off if I'm going to have to stop exercising. And since I took that attitude, I don't feel that guilt anymore. I decided that after years and years of uh, not putting my own health first and not putting me as number one, I'm just going to put me as number one. And then I'm still going to do everything for my companies. But uh, if anyone has anything to say, they can fucking eat a dick. Okay. And, I think the more you adopt that attitude towards your own health, the better off you'll be. Because otherwise, you're going to constantly be in this cycle of, oh, I spent two hours exercising. I've got this much work to do, blah, 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 blah. Endless cycle. You just have to decide that it's what you want to do and fuck everyone else, basically. That's what I do. Makes sense. Yeah, well, you're you're definitely the 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 polar opposite of me with dealing with that because it's so... It's so difficult for me to turn it off. Like even me and my girlfriend go for walks all the time. And unless I leave my phone at home, I like, I can't leave, I can't leave it alone. There's always something like, I, I got to do this thing or I got to respond to this thing or I got to. And oh yeah, on top of just generally being in a band and, and whatnot, I'm also like the guy who writes at this point, you know, 95% of the music. So I'm also that guy in the band. So I'm, all, I'm, I have like everything, all these things that are always like on my mind whenever I'm doing stuff. And it's, it's super hard for me to, for me to turn it off. And I know, you know, I, I know it drives my girlfriend nuts. Cause we'll just be out trying to have a nice day and I'll be talking about some thing with some person that I have to do that. And it's, it's, it must be horrible. Like I, I feel, I feel bad for people that have to be around me when I, when I get into those kind of like anxious downward spiral modes, but. Well, I completely understand. I'm that way too. That's why I'm saying that the thing that I decided was to make it a conscious decision. I mean, it's not like I don't think about that kind of stuff when I exercise, but when I catch myself doing it, I'm like, shut the fuck up. This is more important right now. And uh, so I guess I made the choice to prioritize the health aspect because I also have that voice, but the thing is that that voice was winning for so many years that it destroyed my health. So I have decided to not let it win, uh, but I can't get rid of it completely because I'm just wired that way anyways. So the meditation will help because uh, you'll be able to catch yourself more when you're doing it. Yeah, and it was a little while ago, Devin Townsend released a free like ebook and it was about creativity and writing and life experience and stuff like that. And he said something in there that kind of just like really hit home with me where he was talking about, you know, you could sit in front of your, you know, recording setup for your entire life and, you know, obsess over getting this song done or this project done or being hung up on the writer's block for this section or whatever. But really, you know, the, the whole thing about music is that it's you channeling everything that you've experienced in your life up until that moment into the art that you're making. And if you don't actually go out and experience life, then you have nothing to pull from. So 
when I read that, I was like, damn, I was like, that's like 100% me. And so I'm at least aware of it that I'm like this. Uh, and I would like to to change it in the future. But I, I mean, I 100% agree with what he said about that. It's totally true. Like, you know, you, you're not going to make art in a vacuum. I mean, I guess you could. Uh, but ultimately, living a life, you know, having experiences uh, to pull from for your art is is where it all comes from, I guess. Well, yeah, it's not about destroying that part of yourself. It's just about redirecting it. So if that part of yourself that's always uh, going for things is getting in the way of you doing things you actually want to do in your life, then you can redirect that energy to focus on the thing it is that you're doing. So if uh, you're walking with your girlfriend and you want to be present with your girlfriend and that's important to you, you can choose to focus that energy into that rather than focusing your energy on a million different things. But I don't think that you'll ever be able to totally turn it off. And I think Devin's totally right. And that's also the same reason for why when I went to Berkeley, uh, all those people who sat in the practice rooms 12 hours a day and never did anything ever in life and came from a super boring background, always played the most boring shit you could ever imagine. Scales at uh, 250, 16th notes, that's like all they ever did. They never wrote anything cool. They had nothing to offer. And it's because they had nothing to offer as people. And there's a direct correlation between who you are as a person and what you do with your music. So I agree with Devin. Yeah. I also agree with Devin as well. Yeah. What a guy. What a guy. He's pretty smart. Yeah. I, I recently finished reading his book, Only Half There, which is basically his his whole story. And that dude has so, so much wisdom. Like, even if you don't like his music or whatever, like anyone who's doing anything even remotely creative can absolutely you know, pull from that guy's story and learn a thing or two, I think. Honestly, man, I've only heard two of his songs ever. What? But uh, I consider him a friend and I love talking to him. Yeah, he's super, super inspiring and smart. You've only listened to two Devin Townsend songs. Is that yeah. including Strapping Young Lad? Yes. I have one Strapping Young Lad song and then I've heard the Genesis, the newer track. You're missing out, man. It's phenomenal. His voice alone is worth it. I'm a definite Devin Townsend fan because I know he has he has some some fans. You know what I mean? Like people that are like all they can tell you they're like Mike Patton fans. Exactly. And and I wouldn't say I'm one of those guys, but I'm pretty familiar with his discography, and I think he's in in an incredible artist. And I agree. But really, what I enjoy, I I just like listening to that guy talk about stuff. I think he's got such a like a unique. Uh, angle on everything, I guess. Just to just totally unique. Yeah, same here. I know his music's good, but I don't find myself listening to it that much, but I'm still a fan of him. By not having listened to his music, it's weird because sometimes when I don't listen to people's music, I don't consider myself a fan, but in his case, I'm definitely a fan just because he's so fucking smart. Yeah, I've I've there's a couple of bands like that with me where I'm not necessarily a fan of their music or I don't know, I don't know a lot about their discography, but I, their career trajectory and just how they generally handle art is, is inspiring to me and, and cool and different. So yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. John, you're surprised though. I, I think it's just like, I, I can't, I couldn't tell you the name of most of Devin's discography. I really couldn't, but 
I just, everything that I've heard every single time I'm blown away. I just don't know why I don't listen to it on repeat like you, but I definitely know more than two songs. <laughs> I think that's probably what it was. I think that's, yeah, that's potentially just what it was. I was quite surprised by just two. I did listen to Genesis on repeat. All right. You heard that song? Yeah, of course. Fucking nuts. My dad loves Devin Townsend. My dad's a bigger Devin Townsend fan than I am, and my dad's 67. <laughs> Dude, De- Devin's awesome. What, what can I say? Have you heard the the podcast he did? Uh, on U, on URM? Yeah, URM. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard that. It was good. It's. I wish that every conversation I've had with him was recorded because every single one is that good. Yeah, he's, man, he's just, dude's full of wisdom. Dude, I mean, he's been in, you know, enough bands. And, and I mean, the, one of the, one of the craziest parts of that, that book that I just finished of his was when he was talking about strapping young lad and how I, I, I might get the, the timeline wrong here. I might get the festival wrong here, but I feel like he's, he was talking about when they played at download and that was like the biggest point in that band's career up until that point. And Devin, it was then after that humongous set that they just played and the rest of his band is celebrating and high-fiving each other and cracking beers and whatever. And it was then that he realized that he no longer wanted to pursue Strapping Young Lad as a band because he didn't think that he could handle how much bigger that band was going to get and how much more it would require of him, even when he was already running at 100%. He knew then that he didn't want to take it any further than that. And that's when he told them after that set that he was dissolving the band. Which is crazy. Which is crazy because his career got even bigger. Well, yeah, of course. But, you know, he didn't know that that was going to happen then. He just knew that it was like, he's, he, it's, it's just wild to me that he's able to just like turn it off. He's like, done with that. Need to do a new thing in life. I understand how that works. That's anxiety, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. It's when you're done. Some people, when they're done with something, they're done with it. Like uh, when I was done with playing or done with uh, producing, it's just done. And a lot of people from the outside can't understand that because they're not done with it and they can't imagine a world where they're done with it. But from the inside, it's just like when you're over a girl or something, you're just over it. Like there's nothing, like have you ever been over a girl to where there's literally nothing she can possibly do for you to ever be interested again? It's kind of a similar sort of feeling to where it's like, it's over, it's done. I, I just think it's extra interesting when dudes are able to do it with something like like music or art that's like so deeply personal and they're just able to be like, done, like next. It's it's because you said what you were intending to say. Yeah. No, and I think that I think it's I think that's awesome. Just like I think it's awesome when, you know, a guy like Michael Akerfeld from Opeth talks about you know, as soon as he releases a record, he doesn't care about it anymore because that was just a snapshot of where he was at in his life. And like, that's what it sounded like then. And he's beyond that. So he's like totally detached from the record by the time it comes out, which some people might look at that as like, you know, he's being cocky or pretentious or whatever, but I don't see it that way at all. I think, I think it's insane that, you know, and great that people are able to separate themselves from their art like that when they've spent so much time making it. And then by the time it comes out, they're already on to the next thing. I think it's awesome. I, I think that's probably because he's listened to it about 10,000 times at that point. <laughs> Cause I, I know that vibe. Definitely. Definitely. Think about what goes into writing an Opeth record in the first place. 
Yeah. You know? And it's all, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet that it's mostly all him. You know, I've watched their behind the scenes stuff and it seems like he generally gives the band complete sounding demos and, you know, they, they all go off of that. So he, he probably is, I mean, I guess he's in a similar situation to, to me with what I do in my band. Like I give all the other dudes in my band, like totally mixed, you know, mastered, completely produced sounding a record basically. And like, here you go. Now it's, you know, your guy's turn. So like, it does, it does take the steam out of you, you know? So I, I get why he does that. And I, I don't know. I think it's cool. It's, I respect him for that. I have a question about your band, considering that it operates that way. Seems like you guys are cool. Some bands operate that way and the other members secretly hate the dude that writes but uh, you, you, like you said, you guys have kept the same lineup for a while. Seems like shit's stable. Why don't they hate you? I guess in our in our bands uh, specifically, especially since our last record came out, that was really when, you know, that was like the turning point for us because up until that last record had come out, we were still like very, very much just grinding it out and, and eating shit. But, you know, after that record came out, we we were able to, do a lot more touring than we normally did, but it was under better, it was under better circumstances and in like better condition, I guess. And I don't know, I guess we were just able to, we're able, we're the kind of band that's able to be honest with each other. And if anybody starts getting an ego about anything or whatever, like we just check it right there. Like, I think, I think that's a healthy thing to have in a band uh, is the ability to, you know, check one another. And I think that's ultimately something that keeps bands together is just being able to call one another on bullshit and not have a major blowout and just be like, Oh, okay, well maybe, maybe I am an idiot, you know? And like, you know, I, I'm, I say that about myself all the time, you know, I'm like, I don't, maybe I don't know anything like who am I to say? So yeah, I, I guess just honesty with one another. And I don't know, I guess sonically, at least I don't have anything to do with the lyrics. That's all our, our bassist Adam but like sonically, I guess I just have a very clear picture with of of what I want you know a, a record to be, and all the you know the drum, drummer Jared he'll come in and he'll add his tweaks to my MIDI parts, and Biggs writes his own bass lines and everything like that. So everyone does make tweaks and stuff, but I've found that I don't know the guys just they just I guess I got lucky. I got a group of they guys. They dig your vision. Yeah, they're just down with it, I guess. And yeah. and you know there's there's never been any like real hostility between any of us as far as like creative stuff goes. Plus everybody knows that I'm the dude in the band who's the most production savvy, I guess. And writing all together in a room sucks. So like if they can, you know, just live their lives and have me send them a complete record and then do their work to it, like that's way better than us all sweating together in a rehearsal space and just trying to scream over top of each other's guitars and drums and, and whatnot. So I don't know. <laughs> and also I think the fact that you guys are doing better and better and better, obviously it works. So why fuck with something that's working? Yeah, for sure. Though I've seen bands do that and to their own uh, peril, basically. Honestly, we've just lucked out and gotten a pretty solid group of dudes that are just, that are just down I guess like I could probably look for all kinds of explanations of how we handle things business wise or personality wise in the band. But I think ultimately we just kind of lucked out and got a, a, a generally chill, chill group of dudes who are just down to, to play some, some heavy metal. 
What do you think, Brown? Should uh, you you kind of have that same role? Yeah, I think up until the last record, yeah, and I think it was more just the 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 sound to a degree at the beginning was um it just takes you know if you're dropping someone else into your vision it takes them time to sort of play on a similar sort of playing field if that makes sense like you don't want it to sound too far away if it's like two people writing and i think that i think that sometimes it just requires time to get into the similar sort of sound you, you know what band does it great is a uh, black dahlia they like I remember when Ryan Knight was in the band, it wasn't really uh, certain yet if he was going to be allowed to write, but uh, he kept submitting songs and they kept on being more and more and more in the style of Black Dahlia until he was writing Black Dahlia songs. And then his songs ended up on the record. Then I believe that Brandon Ellis is also writing songs, but they're doing it in the style of BDM, and so it works. I, I totally agree with you that if you don't have that happen, it's going to sound like a completely different band. Exactly. I think sometimes it's just about time and not necessarily that, you know, not interfering with the initial vision. I think that's, I mean, a good, but another good example of that actually is Meshuggah. Like, I mean, I know that Frederick gets a lot of the praise, but Morton has written his uh, more than a handful of their best hits. Um, you know, New Millennium Cyanide Christ was Morton and a lot of Obzen as well. Obviously, Bleed and um, Dancers was Frederick. But I think the rest of the record was Morton. Didn't he write that? What is that? What is that song? Acrid Placidity. That yeah. song. Yeah, that's the first time I heard that. Silent Lucidity? Yeah, Silent Lucidity by uh, Metallica. <laughs> but the first time I heard that song, I just, being like a young Meshuggah fan, I just assumed that it was, that was like, oh, that's Frederick. But like that that whole solo is like, that. that's all Martin, right? How do you say his name? I'm- it's got It's got the O above the A. So I think it's pronounced Morten or something. I think so. Anyway, that's probably completely wrong, but it's something like that. I think there's a thing <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, he, he he's uh he's responsible for some of my favorite moments in like in that band. I, did he also write the solo section in uh, Strahl's Pulled at Random? I think I heard somewhere that that was that was a, a, Mart, a Martin part. <laughs> I actually have no idea, but that's definitely one of my favorite Meshuggah moments. Yeah, it's one of the most melodic moments in their career uh i i would say one of the prettiest sounding meshuggah sections that i that i've ever heard and definitely one of my one of my favorite sections and i'm pretty sure i read somewhere that that was a a, a martin part but I, I i could be wrong about that but yeah like that's a great example of you know a band you know coming together with like the vision i mean and that's not to say that in our you know in, in rivers that i write everything like you know on the last two records our other guitarist john and i have collaborated on tracks where he'll bring in a, say a song that's, you know, two thirds of the way done. And I'll throw in some riffs that I've had, you know, in the bin and also like add like any additional production elements to the song that we work on together so that it blends in better with the context of the rest of the album. And then on this new record that hasn't come out yet, uh, for the first time, our bass player and I collaborated on, on a song. So it, it does happen, but yeah, like generally it's, it's like mostly me just sending the guys songs, but yeah, there's, there's a way to do it. And I think, uh, just finding little ways to, to, to blend stuff together so that it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, 
um, is, is the way to go, whether it's, you know, overdubs, you know, in our case, we use a lot of heavy atmosphere. So whether it's something like that, or, or like say a, uh, a plugin that you're, or a, uh, like a contact library that you're using a lot on, on the record, you know, including that on something can just make it blend in a little bit better, I think. Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, so to answer your question, Al, I think it's fine for multiple people to write. It just needs to make sure that if it was initially one person, then it just needs to follow the, the not to say the band can't change their sound, but it needs to be in the vein of. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I just got silent because I remembered some trauma from <laughs> that experience. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I, I was the also the, the dude who wrote most everything. And it started that way, and then it became a democracy, which uh, was a mistake. <laughs> Let's just say it was a huge mistake. But uh, so whenever bands pull that off, I'm always impressed when a band goes from having like one central person to democracy and they don't break up, uh, or where there's one central writer and everybody else is just cool with it. That also impresses me because I've never experienced either of those. I've always experienced where everybody else is a fucking bitch because they don't get to write or it becomes a democracy. And then you have to go up against votes of people who don't understand the vision. Yeah. One example that I can think of, of a band that operates completely different from, from my band, but like, I think it's, it's amazing and they make it work in such a crazy way. I mean, you know, I'm going to say it's Archspire. They like yeah, write their, <laughs> they, they write that music. I don't get it. <laughs> Dude, they write that music in a room together and it has to be unanimous on everything or else it doesn't make I don't, the album. It, but they're Canadian. That's true. But <laughs> I've toured extensively with those guys and being around those dudes is, and I know Dean talked about on on his episode, but they have such a specific sense of humor. They're like just brutally brutally sarcastic at all times. And, and like, man, I, I would just love to sit in on, on a writing session with those guys just to hear what, what gets said. I, I'd imagine it would be a, a good for, for a couple of laughs. Cause they're, they're all hilarious, but yeah, that the process that they use is, is, uh, it's wild, but it works, it works so well. And their music is, you know, leagues above where, where my band is at technically. And, and I have to write everything on a computer. So, you know, I guess whatever works. <laughs> I don't understand how they possibly write that shit in the same room. I mean, me neither. I guess having in-ears probably has something to do with it because, but they did it before they had in-ears, you know. I heard I heard Dean talk about that once when we were on tour with them and I kind of dismissed it as like, oh yeah, whatever, you're just bragging, you know, like, but then I heard him talk about it a couple more times. And I was like, damn, I guess it's true. And it is true. So yeah, it's crazy. I couldn't write shitty metalcore in a room with, with dudes, let alone, <laughs> you know, 300 beats per minute, technical death metal, like no way. There's definitely something wrong with them. That's the only real consensus here, isn't it? There's got to be something wrong with them. <laughs> of course there's something wrong with them, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some wiring that uh, that got crossed because it shouldn't work that way. It shouldn't, but, uh, you know, they make it work. That's how bands used to do it. Well, when we had Mark on and he was talking about uh, Suicide Silence and them writing in the same room, that makes perfect sense because that's you can imagine that kind of band or like a band like Korn or something throwing down in a room. So the riffs are simple. It's like easy to like to communicate it to the other person. 
it's all about how hard the shit hits. Like, it makes sense that a band like Suicide Silence writes in the same room, like old school style. Perfect sense. But Arkspire, what? That doesn't make sense to me. I just don't understand it. There's definitely no way I could ever go back to doing things that way for Rivers because so much of so much of our sound at this point has to do with because usually there's there's like a central riff going on, but then there's all these other kind of overdubs happening. And like to be able to figure that all out in a room with a bunch of dudes, uh, you know, it's terrible. Yeah, there's no way I could do it. We would play, we'd all play the riff together and it would just sound anemic and weird because all of those other layers that, you know, I would add to it uh, in this, you know, in sitting in front of my recording setup, uh, they're just not there. So it's definitely having my own setup and being able to use everything efficiently is, is for sure such a huge part of my writing process at this point. I, I don't think I could ever go back. So just out of curiosity, which animals are cops? <laughs> oh, is he like texting you right now telling you no. <laughs> birds, birds, birds are, birds are cops, man. Are you kidding me? Bird, all birds are cops. They're just, they're always around, you know? <laughs> All right. That, that's the answer. I mean, there's no, there's, I mean, I don't, I don't know how deep you want to go with this, but I mean, it's, it's yeah. Birds, birds are cops. I mean, I think birds are real. Cause I don't know if either one of you guys have, have visited the website. Uh, I think it's birds are not real.com. There's a whole, there's like a whole conspiracy. What? There's a whole conspiracy community that basically thinks that uh, birds are not real, that they're drones for the government. And that's the only reason that they exist. I don't think birds are drones for the government, but I do think that they're, they are cops Damn. for sure. <laughs> Hold on. I just went to birdsarenotreal.com and it says, by clicking this button, you will be redirected to the Chrome store and be given the option to install safe search extension. Otherwise, skip directly to your destination by clicking the close button to your right. That sounds sketchy. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I don't see a close button. Birds... So aren't real uh, it's all right i've just found uh, a oh, little link it. here yeah it's not the actual site but it's just a, a write-up about birds being government issued drones wow it's can... birds aren't real a movement birds aren't real.com <laughs> yeah. activism apparel yeah that's it is this a joke no man i mean to <laughs> to us yeah but to some people i'm sure it's no very... no like are you sure this isn't a troll thing it'd be a pretty good troll it's like that south park level <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, people think the earth is flat. I mean, like, I think that's a troll, but that's, you know, obviously not. Some people really, really believe that shit, you know? Oh, dude, this actually, I'm reading the history and this is really long. Yeah. This, this is not a troll. No. Holy shit. I'm not with the, I'm not with those people though, man. I'm just, I'm just vigilant, hyper vigilant about birds with threatening auras and stuff like that. You know, I just always worried that my puppy was going to get taken by a bird when she was, you know, 12 pounds. I hate birds and I hate, but I hate fish even more. You hate fish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Birds, man. People, people that, people that have birds. It's, it's a weird animal to have a, as a pet. Don't you think? Like I had a, a why bird. would you have a flying animal in a cage in your house? Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I remember one time someone that I know posted a, a status that gave me a good chuckle. It said, it said that the thing that he's afraid of more than anything in life is falling deeply in love with a woman who he wants to spend the rest of his life with only to go home to her house for the first time and find out that she has birds. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, worse we had than a, cats. Got to bail out.
We had a we had a pet budgie. Why? It's like a small bird. Well, they, you know, it was cute until you got it out of the cage and it tried to attack your eyes. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the point of why <laughs> you shouldn't fuck with birds. Yeah. They're dinosaurs, and they'll, they are the dinosaurs. only reason they're not eating you is because of your size. Yeah, but cats as well. I mean, you can't domesticate a cat. I don't like cats either. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just don't have anything else to talk about, so. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been, no, it's been, it's been a pleasure, man. <laughs> why do you like cats, Brody? I want to know, like, cause you're a pretty reasonable person. Why would you like an animal that won't protect you? That isn't loyal to you and basically just leeches off of you? Well, two reasons. One, I grew up in a house where my parents, uh, fostered greyhounds. Oh God. Well, they're terrible too. God, I sound like an animal hater, don't I? <laughs> I love animals. Well, right. I mean, you know, if you have six greyhounds, uh, at any given point, you're running around your house as a child and, you know, they, they bite each other and they, they have to go to the vet and they have stitches cause they got to it, dude, it's, it's just like, I don't know, my, my, uh, my girlfriend, she, she had cats when we met each other and, uh, I don't know, I just kind of got into cats. I guess I, I figured, you know, I don't, uh, and it's so like, I don't know, I guess, I guess cats are just like very the opposite of like everything else about my personality. So I guess they're, they're just kind of like a, I don't know, an, an, an outlet that's a, a different avenue from, from everything else in my life. Like, I guess it doesn't make sense that I like cats, but I do because they're so different from everything else in my life. Like living furniture or something? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. No, I, 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 um, I don't know. I just like cats, man. I, uh, He's been infected by the toxoplasma. That's what it is. I, I guess I, I understand <laughs> why you would be sketchy about having dogs after that experience because- Having lots of dogs in one house is kind of shitty, I think. I like dogs. I just, I think at this point in my life, if, if we got a dog. It's a lot of work. I, if we got a dog, I would want a smaller dog. Like I just, I have no interest in having a big, huge, hairy, loud, slobbery dog. I like when, I don't know, like when I go to people's houses and they're just like, oh, he's fine. But he's like, you know, this giant dog in my face with spit all over. And like, I don't know, I'm just like not down. Like, I guess like I've just evolved out Fair of like enough. being a dog guy. I just, I'm just a cat guy now. I love German shepherds, but honestly, I think my, mine's turning 10 next year. So who knows how long she's going to live. Yeah. I'm not sure that I'm going to get another one when she dies. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, I, I love her and all that, but holy shit, dude. See, and I don't want a small dog. If I'm going to get a dog, I want a dog that'll protect me and that it's going to be loyal and, yeah, you know, earn its rent basically. Because yeah. <laughs> you know how much that shit, you want to talk about how much a fucking German shepherd costs to get trained and like all, holy shit. So basically when I was, when I was at the age where I bought her, uh, it was basically either I'm going to get rid of my band van, which is my car and get a, an adult car, or I'm going to get this dog. And I got the dog and, uh, <laughs> she, she's basically the, like a car. And so I expect her to earn her rent by protecting me. That's what I see the trade off as with a dog. But, uh, man, I don't, I don't know if I have it in me to put that kind of work time and money into another animal. Yeah. I mean, just get a little, little dachshund or something. Those things are cute. I think, I don't know. I think that it's not going to protect me. Yeah. Though. You're yeah. You, 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 the protection thing. I don't know. I guess I get the more I think about it, I guess another reason that I probably like cats is because they're, 
emotionally low maintenance. Like if I want to just leave them alone, it's not going to, they're not going to like get up in my face. Just like, and I guess that I can draw, draw the line between how I see cats with how I see some of the people that I consider to be my best friends. All of my like real good friendships are friendships that I don't really have to run maintenance on. Like I cannot talk to them for a year and then be like, oh yo, what's up? And we can pick up like right where we left off. But the, yep. but you know what I mean? So like, I guess in that sense, like maybe, maybe that the, there's a parallel there between cats and, and friends, because like, I don't have to always fuss with cats. They're pretty low maintenance. All of our cats, at least they're very clean. And, you know, I just clean their litter box once a day and that's about it. Um, just low maintenance. I guess I'm just like, uh, I guess I have issues with a commitment or something like that. There's something there, like <laughs> like so, some dark thing there for sure. The more that we talk about, it, but dude, this podcast is so heavy. It's like we the whole time. What do you think this is gonna be? <laughs> I don't know. I thought we were gonna talk about riffs, man. Talk about Fucking, riffs, man. We can talk about riffs, man. Now that I've gone down this psychological rabbit hole of what my relationship with cats is really about, uh, let's yeah, let's talk about <laughs> riffs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, riffs. Uh, they're pretty cool, right? Yeah, riffs. Yeah, riffs. Riffs are sick, man. No, but f actually, I, I was getting ready to ask you on the topic of maintenance. Uh, if during quarantine you've been, um, we've noticed that people are either like on a quest to get way better than ever, or well, there's like three options. Either they're fucking doing nothing and they're super depressed and they think the world's going to end. Uh, and they're not inspired to do jack shit and people are saying it's okay to feel that way. Then there's people who are like, I'm going to become Superman during this time period and do every single fucking thing. And then there's people who are just like, I'm going to maintain. Where are you with your musicianship? I would say, well, I mean, I just, I just finished a record yesterday. So, I mean, I guess that partially answers that question. I've been productive. I've been musically insanely productive during this time, you know, uh, but I do, I do go through the piece of shit. I'm not going to do anything depression mode uh, more than I'd like to. But that being said, when I, when I look back on this whole thing, since, you know, it's funny because we were on tour in January and February and well, yeah. And, uh, John, you yeah. saw, I saw everybody in your band, but you that night, where was that in the, was that in the Netherlands? Where, no, where was, was in, that? It was in Denmark. In Denmark. Yeah. Uh, so you guys were on, on tour the same time as us. Like we, we were planning on making that tour, our last tour of that album cycle. And then we were basically planning on taking the rest of this year off to finish writing and recording the record, except for a few festivals, which obviously got canned. So like in essence, I'm kind of doing exactly what I was going to be doing if this hadn't happened, but it did happen. So I've got even more time on my hands. So I guess, you know, I've been, I got on the, the, the Twitch thing. Uh, I've been doing, I've been doing uh, those a couple of times. I, I was doing them a lot more at the beginning. I, I want to like get a schedule established, but I was do. I, I learned how to do Twitch. I've been playing a lot of piano again lately, which is, was my first instrument actually. And, uh, and I went out and bought a sustain pedal and I've actually been playing a lot of piano again. So that's a thing. Started exercising again, finished writing a record. I've taken on a couple of mixing and mastering jobs, but, uh, I would say generally it's been a productive period for me, but you know, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I've got it all figured out. Like I definitely, I definitely go in, into the, into the dark place. Like, you know, well, nobody's got it figured out. 
yeah, I know, but it's it would just be easier, you know, because I'm on a I'm on a podcast that you know, you know all these <laughs> aspiring aspiring producers and musicians or producers and musicians are going to hear, you know, for me to stand up here and be like, yeah, just this is the formula, and like you just have to kill it 100 percent of the time, and if you don't, then you suck, <laughs> you know. Like I, and I'm not going to stand up here and do that, you know. Like I, I I go to the the dark place for sure. I go to the place where I I eat a pound of spaghetti at 10 p.m. and then I fall asleep at 10:30 and then I wake up. <laughs> the next morning and I feel like trash. You know what I mean? Like, of course I go there, but that is the thing I stopped. Doing. Yeah. I mean, We've got different issues. Yeah. So I, I do go there, but I, I think this, the, this period has been pretty productive for me. Uh, I've been spending most of it writing stuff for the new record and, and fucking figuring out that shit with Twitch, man. Like what a nightmare. I spent an entire week of my life just figuring out how to get audio from my doll. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can I say two things about what you're saying? Number one, if anybody says that they don't go to that place during this time period, they're probably lying or they're complete psychopaths. So I think, you know, if they're not feeling any sort of uncertainty and they're not, uh, and it's not affecting them emotionally at all, there's probably something deeply wrong with them. And they probably need therapy and help because they're uh, sociopaths or psychopaths. So <laughs> that's one thing. Uh, so I actually think that it's totally normal to feel the unease of the, I mean, this is, this time period, I don't know how old you were when 9-11 happened, but this is crazier than that time period. Uh, and this is the craziest time period I've ever experienced in my entire life. So I think what actually matters is more that people are honest that they do go to that place and then they get out of that place through making good choices rather than pretending like they've got it all figured out because nobody's got shit figured out. That's kind of, if if you want to take anything from everything you're seeing on the news and social media and everything that's going on, I think the common underlying thing is nobody knows what's going on. And that said, streaming is so much harder than people think it is. Like they think it's easy because people make it look easy and they just get on and they do casual things like play video games or play guitar. So it's like, yeah, I'm just going to do that. It's like, yeah, all it is. I'm just going to get on camera and say stuff. Nope. That's not all it is. That whole thing like legitimately swallowed up, like I would say a week of my time, just figuring out how to get everything synced up because as soon as I would figure one thing out, I'd be like, yes, I got it. The other thing wouldn't work. And then I'd be like, well, what, what is this? Like, or if I figured everything out on the video end of things, which was actually the easiest part, I guess, uh, you know, then something would go wrong on the, on the audio end. So it, it, and then once you actually put it all into motion and you do a stream, then you run into a whole new, you know, set oh, yeah. of <laughs> problems with, I run this program called voice meter banana, uh, which is essentially a virtual nope. <laughs> Do you use it too? Nope. No, it's just a great name. Yeah, it's a great name. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's voice meter banana, voice meter potato, regular voice meter. I don't know what other voice meters they have, but essentially the reason that they have different names is because I guess they just give you different options for virtual inputs. But essentially what I'm doing is I'm routing all my audio from, you know, Cubase into this virtual mixer which is allowing me to record my guitar in real time on the stream. And then so it's kind of like loop back. Yeah, it, it is. It's but figuring that whole thing out because I was having this issue where I would be doing streams. And usually what I do is I'll do, or recently what I've been doing is I've been getting old pre-production sessions out from our last record where I was know my name. And I've been revisiting the sessions, looking at 
you know, how terribly tracked like this was or that was, and just trying to like remix, make it sound a little better, showing people what my process is and talking about maybe what I was thinking while I was writing this riff or this section or whatever. So I've, I've been doing that. You want to do that on URM sometime. That would be cool. I would love to. That's honestly, that's, that's the shit that I enjoy the most is like talking about is talking about that kind of stuff. It's, it's super fun for me. Those pod or those, uh, streams have been very enjoyable for me. The, the kind of unboxing of these three or four year old, uh, sessions. But then additionally, I've been doing these writing sessions where I'm, I'm not writing anything that's going to be used for rivers of Nile, but I'm writing these songs. Like sometimes it'll be, a an electronic song. Sometimes it'll be a death metal song. Sometimes it'll be a orchestral thing, but you know, I'm writing this stuff in real time. And there's just the little things that you never think about. Like, Oh, if I'm, I'm recording my guitar to the MIDI drums that I'm hearing, but then when you watch the video play back from the stream, you're playing like three bars behind where they're hearing the drums is being at because of the latency of they're getting the direct feed from your guitar through your interface, but they're hearing the audio from your DAW at the, <laughs> I know. <laughs> at the designated uh, buffer size that you're shooting it back into Streamlabs from or whatever. It's just, there's so many things like, and I'm still figuring it out. You know, I've had to increase my buffer size to like 2048 in the middle of a stream. And like, then there's all this lag. It, dude, it's a nightmare. But, you know, luckily now I pretty much have it figured out. I'm running a, <laughs> a very, very minimal, minimalist setup. You know, I just have one Logitech C920 camera and then basically just, you know, my normal recording setup with a microphone running through that voice meter program. But as I start to bring in more cameras and, and more stuff, I know it's just going to get worse. Oh, dude, once you start bringing in more cameras, get an external switcher. Yeah, absolutely. I obviously do this stuff for Riff Hards. We do a lot of live events on there. And after spending probably about the same amount of time as you did with OBS <laughs> and Streamlabs, I decided that it, my headache was large enough for me to spend money. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute nightmare. There's so much that goes into it. There's so much that can go wrong, but with an external switcher, then you can connect your interface into that. And then you work out the latency as one. So yeah. your voice, yeah. So it's, it made it a lot easier. So then it like literally took me a day instead of five weeks or whatever it was going to take me to figure out OBS. It's a, it's a, another black hole, you know, uh, <laughs> that URM is about to, uh, start putting out fast tracks on this stuff. Like we are filming an OBS fast track right now. And uh, it just, uh, we just figure that this is what producers and musicians are doing now. Like, like the definition of, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but the definition of what a modern producer musician is, has changed. It's been changing over the past few years, but I think COVID times accelerated it to now video is as much of a part of it as recording is. And so, yeah, so we're, our OBS fast track, I think is coming out in August and uh, it's going to be just as detailed as our Pro Tools or Cubase fast tracks. And we're just adding that shit in there because everyone's doing it now and it's fucking hard as shit. Yeah, it was something for me that was a really difficult hurdle to get get over because I've had people in my ear for, you know, a, a while telling me that I should be, getting, getting on the streaming thing. And I was, I play video games, but I, I don't have the kind of personality that's required to hold on. Let me stop you right there. How is it that 
when you go out on walks? I know that Brown said that on walks he gets guilty, but how do you play video games and not have that voice that's not present not fuck you up? Because I can't play video games because of that voice. You know, like the, I've got to do this next to get to this goal. Like, as soon as my life got serious, I had to stop playing video games because I just couldn't, I couldn't even get past the training missions because my, that voice was like, dude, you need to be working on this thing. How do you turn it off for video games? I don't know if I do. Like, that's the thing with me. That's why I don't think I would make a good streamer with video games because I only really get like, ankle deep into video games. I don't fully, okay, I, I don't, I don't let it consume. Like I'll sit down. I played the doom games. I really like those and their soundtracks. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. I mean, we could talk all day about Mick Gordon, but yeah, like those, I, I'm like a, an ankle deep video game kind of guy. I'll, I'll get real into a video game every now and then, but it hasn't happened in a couple of years. And like, I'm okay with that. So for me, the video game thing is sort of just uh, like a whatever kind of thing. You know, I don't, I don't get too deep okay, into got it. it, but you know, f for me with the streaming, I was thinking, well, there's no way I can stream myself playing video games because I'm not interesting enough. And I don't have a, like a, I'm, I'm not snarky enough, I guess, to, to be like one of those guys. And I wasn't really interested in doing streaming because I thought I had to talk like all of the YouTube people talk. Like, don't you forget to like and subscribe below. Brody Utley coming at you. Streamlabs 2020. <laughs> like that is not, anyone who knows me knows that that is absolutely not how I am. But but those people on YouTube probably aren't like that either. I know. They're not. Yeah. I, I, I know that, but I can't even pretend to put myself there because I would just like pucker up so bad because of how much I was weirding myself out for acting that way. But the, the reason I'm, saying that is because when I actually dig it onto streaming, uh, I realized that a lot in the way that you can make your Instagram page about your interests and your life and your personality, you can do the same thing with your streams. You don't have to be yes. a big, big shot salesman guy, right? You can just be weird dude in his room playing with Bernard Herman's orchestral library from Spitfire and going through all the <laughs> articulations. Like you can do that and people will watch you do that. And that's okay. That's a very interesting thing you're saying. And I completely agree. And I actually started taking that approach on my Instagram because I didn't take my Instagram seriously till about four months ago. And uh, since then, the engagement has gone 5x and it's growing like crazy. And I just decided I'm going to focus on three things that are like, I'm not going to focus on every single part of me, just three things that I know people are into that are interesting, that I've, that are a part of my history. So one of them is going to be guitar. Another one's going to be recording. And then another one is going to be entrepreneurial shit I've done. And I'm going to cut everything else out and just focus on those three things. So all my posts since basically March have been those three things. And uh, by focusing on just that, it's crazy, dude. Like it's exploded and I'm not having to post bullshit. So it's everything I'm posting is honestly a part of me. Even if it's a record that I haven't listened to in a long time, it's a, it's a part of me and I'm not having to invent things. And I, I always felt like either I needed to be like a current guitar player now still making stuff for to have an Instagram takeoff where I needed to invent shit. But then it was like, no, you just need to focus on reasons to believe in you. And so I think your idea is 
right on. What are like the things about you that are interesting that you do that you're good at that other people might be interested in and just focus on that. And people, I'm pretty sure people will be interested. Yeah. I think we've kind of reached a point in the, the way that the internet works where I think people appreciate just general honesty. Like they, like, I I feel like at one point you had to be like the really like outgoing, super loud type of personality to make something work. But, But I think now we've kind of hit a point where that stuff exists as well. But I think people do appreciate the stuff like what what we're talking about, where it's like not necessarily like loud and in your face. It's just like some dude being a dude in his room doing what he does or whatever, you know? So I don't know, but that was my biggest hurdle. And then when I hit all the technical hangups, I was almost just like, you know, fuck this. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm just going to like keep doing what I'm doing and forget about this. But I'm glad I did it because I feel like it, you know, even though I'm, I'm, I'm still, my main focus is, is, being in a touring band that's not able to tour anymore, I guess I feel like a little bit better about it because I've sort of future-proofed myself just a, like half a percent more than what I was before, I guess. I don't know. I mean, dude, let's be real. We don't know when this shit's going to end. Just like we were saying, nobody knows what's going on. I mean, there will come a point where it ends, but you know, I see bands making tour plans for next year and Good for them. May as well make the plans. And I just got this like email from Nam saying it's happening. But dude, honestly, I doubt that shit's happening. And I think it's all wishful thinking. And I understand why people are making the plans just in case. But really, we don't know when any of this shit's going to end. So making these kinds of moves is the choice. It is the move. Yeah. Plus, you know, say, say that this all just magic, like they just said, it's safe. Everybody just go back to normal. Like no one would be beautiful. It'd be great. But how many people do you really think would just be like, yeah, let's go. Like my gym is open two minutes up the street from me. I haven't been there. You're smart. That's different. (laughs) Well, they did that here in Georgia and in Florida. And now Florida is about to run out of hospital beds. So kind of on the topic of nobody knows what's going on the next logical thing is since nobody knows what's going on, you can't trust what anybody's saying. And so even if they do say it's safe, you don't actually know that they know it's safe. I still don't think anyone actually knows what's going on. This is, you know, we've had, I agree. We've had this for how many months? I still think we're almost a square one with this. Like, I don't think anyone has any fucking clue what's going on, you know? And I, and I don't think that's a a political, you know, I don't think that's siding with any political ideology. I I just legitimately think that no one has any idea. And I think, I think more people should, now it's getting political. I think more people should, should maybe consider the fact that like, maybe they just don't know. I don't think that's political. That's just common sense. I would be very, very careful of people who pretend like they know what's going on. I mean, the same way that like when I'm around people who think they know exactly how the universe was created or something, (laughs) it's like, uh, no, you don't. (laughs) Or people who, people who think they know what happens after you die. It's like, really? You actually know that? Like, cause holy shit, you're magical. Cause (laughs) like, how the hell do you actually, I kind of feel like pretending like you know what's going on right now is a similar sort of thing. It's no way that they know what's going on. And if anybody does know what's going on, it's nobody that we know. Yeah. Right. It's people who are so, yeah, it's, if anybody knows what's going on, it's so far outside of our circle of, 
uh, of contacts or whatever. It's at such high levels that we'll never know anyways, or we won't know for a long time. So I think the best play is to just stay at home, live your life as safely as possible and play it safe. Yeah. You know, I guess if there's, if there's another thing that maybe not necessarily this whole COVID thing, but just like, maybe it's part of getting older, I guess. I, I guess I've just, I guess I've just kind of realized that like, you know, maybe, maybe I don't know maybe I don't know jack shit. You know what I mean? Like may, maybe like I should, right. may, maybe it's an important thing for me to be able to look at, at how I'm acting or things I've done or things I've said and be like, you know what? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just wrong, you know? And, and that was like th- thinking, thinking like back on how, how I used to be in my late teens and early twenties and stuff like that. Like I had real opinions about things and I felt this way about this and that, and I know this and I know that. And I have, you know, I used to be up until recently like that, but in recent years, and especially since COVID, I mean, there's very few things that I know for sure. I try to only worry about like what I have immediate control of. And those, that's like really all I do know. But then the anxiety comes in another, another <laughs> pothole, but like, you know, yep. yeah. Like gen- generally though, uh, I I've been kind of just looking at myself lately and being like, you know, maybe you don't know shit. Maybe you should just, maybe you should just listen. Maybe you should just listen to other people and, and, and just wait, wait to talk. I completely agree. So speaking of what you can control, let's now actually talk about riffs. Okay. So (laughs) what's your practice routine? Like, do you practice, first of all, do you practice like, you know, like a guitar player, shredder guy, or do you just kind of do the, the mission specific kind of work? Well, uh, I don't uh, practice the way I would like to. I'll say that because I'm the dude in the band that's got to write all the stuff. And that's my practice for me. So to me, the best practice is being able to hear myself back and being able to visually see like how I'm actually playing. Like in time? Yeah. yeah, On the screen? mm -hmm. So... I guess, you know, I do have days where I'll sit down and I'll like work stuff out. Like I'll, I'll work on, you know, specific things. And those days are always super fun. But generally I would say that I, I would generally say that most of my time is spent writing and, and that's my practice. Um, you know, just using, using my ears and, and using my eyes, uh, to like see where I'm at with stuff is like been the best practice for me that I could ask for. Like I, you know, before I started recording myself, I didn't, I had like two speeds. I had like slow and fast. Like I didn't understand like how, like (laughs) how like subdivisions worked with like, you know, a whole note and like breaking that down and and whatnot. Like I, I literally had two speeds and I thought, oh yeah, well the kick drum will just fill in the rest of that space, you know? But when I started recording myself and I was actually able to see how poorly I was playing certain things that, that was like the best wake up call for me and, and, and continues to be like a really great source of, of practice for me, just like kind of checking myself with that stuff. So no, I don't, I don't sit down and, and do the, the six to eight hour woodshedding stuff like, like I would have when I was a kid. But I think, I think most of my quote unquote practice comes from writing stuff that's maybe a little bit above my head recording it and then, you know, trying to play it effectively. That That's kind of been my, that's how I've been able to retain the role as like the dude in the band who writes all of the music while also not letting myself slip too far down the totem pole, pole with my guitar playing. Just, you know, using what I'm doing when I'm sitting in this chair here to check myself. That's that's kind of been how, I, how I've continued to 
practice over the years, I guess. Was there a time period where you were more oriented towards just woodshedding? Yeah, definitely. I would say, well, it's funny, I guess, I guess it's really as soon as Rivers started and, and we, you know, started playing a lot of shows locally is when those years ended. So I would say up until I was maybe 20 years old. How long have you guys been around? Cause you're like 43 now. Yeah, I'm 56, uh, 14 years older than Joe Bonamassa. And, uh, no, we formed in, uh, 13 or 13. Yeah. Sorry. Damn, got me. So, uh, yeah, we formed in 2010 and I was 19 then. Yeah. So, but there, there was, I practiced a lot before that, you know, I would, all my time went into guitar, but as soon as I joined this band and, and we started writing songs, like all of my attention went into like songwriting that, and ultimately that is, that is what I care about the most is, is the actual creative process, not necessarily the, the constant technical maintenance, I guess, if, mm-hmm. that, if that makes sense. So I have heard that you started focusing more on your rhythm playing when you were listening to Lamb of God early on. What was it about their rhythm style that drew you in as opposed to anybody else's? And what did you incorporate? Triplets, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they were the first band that I ever heard where it was like they were shredding, but not necessarily shredding. You know, they weren't, they weren't, because I was a huge Nevermore fan. I was a huge- Dude, their riffs are tough. Yeah, no, they absolutely are. And I was always the kind of guy up until that point where if there wasn't some Alexi Leho ripping pentatonic wah solo over top of, uh, you know, a neoclassical uh, synthesizer part. I was like, this is, this is garbage. I have no time for this. <laughs> but uh, when, when I heard Lamb of God, As the Palace's Burn was the first record I got into from them. And when I heard just, I think it was a combination of the production because that was the first time that I heard anything sound quite like that. Like I know that that as the palaces burn is technically kind of regarded as like a poorly mixed record, but I actually, when I first heard that record, I didn't understand that the sound that you're hearing is like an interplay of the bass, the kick drum, the guitar, everything hitting at once. That's that impact. That's that sound that you're hearing on those riffs. And I didn't understand that. I just thought that's what guitar tone sounded like. So that that's what initially attracted me to that was that you could play these riffs and you're not necessarily, you know, just shredding solos the whole time, but it's still super impactful and super interesting sounding because they would use Phrygian dominant stuff and harmonic, all, all like all of the sounds that every kid of that age wants to hear, they were doing it and they were doing it on these kind of like lower, faster riffs. So to me, that was the band that really crossed over from just being strictly a lead guy. And that's when I really started paying attention to my, to my rhythm playing for sure. Since, you know, Riff Hard is all about riffs. One thing that I'm curious about is rhythm playing something that you had to, uh, I guess, start prioritizing once you grew up a little. Like, you know how sometimes guitar players start and they only go for the sexy stuff and then their rhythm playing suffers. And then as they grow up, they're like, oh, this is the important shit. Or were you kind of like a riff guy from the start? I would say because basically up until I when I was maybe 13 or 14 and I got into Children of Bodom, I was very much on path to be like a rock blues guy. Like that's the music that I really liked. And then I heard 
I think I was maybe into Ingve, and then I heard Alexi, and that was like where my whole rig went sideways, basically. I wasn't necessarily a riff guy. I had jammed with other people because of being into the blues and rock and stuff like that. All my guitar teachers that I had had were real big on just jamming and being able to play solos over top of real basic, like, you know, one, four, five kind of stuff. And then also being able to play rhythm. So like rhythm was definitely... I did have a natural sense of rhythm, but I guess it wasn't until later that I really began to appreciate rhythm playing. Like after I got into, after I had heard Lamb of God for the first time, that was definitely the band that made it click in my head that like, oh, okay, like rhythm, rhythm playing is actually very sick. Like, you know, every musician has to have rhythm, of course, but I never thought that, you know, that it was necessarily like the cooler side of things, you know, like I always thought it was the solos were the the sick shit, you know, and, <laughs> and it wasn't until I heard Lamb of God and, and really just a lot of the bands from that whole new wave of American heavy metal movement, which is, I was at the perfect age when that all hit. That was like such a important thing for me. And, and hearing a lot of those bands that were more like rhythm based, like, like Mastodon, of course, and, and, Kill, mm -hmm. Kill Switch Engage, of course, and Shadows Fall. But, you know, Shadows Fall obviously had like a lot of solos too. But yeah, like all those bands, though, that that's those are the bands that got me into heavy music. And, and you know, it, it was cool because when those bands were, were doing their thing, it kind of brought lead playing back into, you know, the spotlight, I guess. It made lead playing cool again after the, the whole new metal thing, but it also brought some in, absolutely insane rhythm playing to the forefront as well. So that, that was just like a generally a very important time for me, I would say. What kind of stuff did you start working on technically? Uh, just, just learning, learning songs uh, from, from those bands and, and really trying to understand as best I could at that age and with what little money I had, you know, being a teenager, how guitar tone worked. Because I remember the first time that I, someone told me about the tube screamer thing, like, you, yeah, if you put a tube screamer in front of a, an amp, it, it does this thing and it's sick. And I got a tube screamer, but I didn't get a noise gate, you know, cause I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. And that was obviously horrible. So yeah. Not sick. Yeah. So I just really spent that time learning about I mean, obviously it was at a very primitive level because I was still very young, but like just learning about how guitar tone work and how like applying pressure to strings works and, and how trying to like stay relaxed and all that works, you know, not tensing up and stuff. Let's talk about that. We have a lot of people who have actually asked for more information about not tensing up. And I can tell you that tensing up is part of what fucked me up a lot as a guitar player. Um, I had a major problem with it and was constantly battling pain. Ended up still, you know, working through it, but I never actually got past that pain. And I, I feel like uh, a lot of you people who have been on the podcast have figured, I don't know, maybe approached it better. So how did you approach not tensing up? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just say like, I, I would say that I don't have it figured out. I have it figured out to a point, but then I, I think everyone kind of like hits that, hits a point BPM wise where it just becomes like ridiculous. And it's just like, what are you going to do? But I don't know. I, I don't have a great answer for that other than just being mindful. I try to keep a lot of my movement just concentrated to my wrist and if I notice that my my elbow's starting to do anything at all, like that's when I just just generally being 
I hate that word mindful because it gets thrown around so much. Yeah, but it's the correct word. Yeah, it's just generally being aware of what your body's doing, I guess. That's the only way to really explain it because as I had said before, you know, before I had started recording myself, I really only had two speeds, fast and slow. And I, I think it was learning the different divisions of a beat that really helped me get my like tension under control, just like understanding, just understanding like how, how rhythm works like better than I had before. And I think a lot of my understanding of, of rhythm comes from my obsession with drums. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to be a drummer. That's the instrument that I wanted to play at first. And to this day, when I'm writing songs, drums are still the thing that I'm the most obsessed with, I would say. And I think just learning how, you know, and this goes back, actually, this goes back to a creative live class that you did all like years ago that I watched where you talked about like programming drums and what it takes to create a virtual drum performance that sounds like a real drummer. Was it the, the advanced metal drum programming or the easy drummer class? I probably watched both. I was, I was, watching it was all, a long time ago yeah i was you know i watched all of that stuff um but i but i think understanding understanding rhythm for me goes hand in hand with with programming drums that was such a huge part of helping me understand like how rhythm works and and you know how to truly divide a beat and you know what that feels like on the hand so i think i think a big part of me getting tension under control has to do with with just un just understanding that there you know there aren't just two speeds it's not just fast and slow and the kick drum's not going to fill in all of your mistakes like really understanding like you know like uh eighth note triplets or sextuplets or like just any of that kind of stuff like that was all such a foreign terminology to my ear until I got into you know recording myself back in 2011 maybe and like being able to look at the grid in Cubase and like actually physically see like how these how rhythm works that was what took things to the next level for me as far as my rhythm playing goes. But mindfulness in general, just being aware of what your body's doing, that was that's really the best answer that I can give. The same thing happened to me. That's exactly how I definitely developed my rhythm technique, but also uh, accompanied with that. Maybe you've not noticed it. Maybe it's subliminal, but I've noticed that my tension gets more under control when I'm concentrating on my breathing. I tend to find that the faster the BPM... I tend to hold my breath like I'm scared of like approaching this. And I've noticed that when I record, I notice it now. And that's one of the things that I found was really helpful in making sure that I didn't tense up during the recording sessions or long sessions or even long sets is that once you do start tensing up, just like start concentrating on your breathing, because the moment you have a tense muscle, your muscle needs more oxygen and stopping breathing is the worst thing that you can do for that. <laughs> That's what I've noticed anyway for the tension thing. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I can tell, you know, I could see, you know, if there's pictures of when we were touring, you know, if there's a, pic a picture that surfaces of me playing, I know if I'm having a, if, if I'm tensing up, like just based by looking on a picture at a picture, like I, I do this thing where I like bite the side of my mouth and yeah. my tongue and, and you can tell I'm just like breathing through <laughs> my nose, like all uncomfortably and probably like tensing up. So yeah, breathing I'm sure is, is a huge, a huge part of it. Like I'm, you know, it's, it's funny because I talk to, to people who, who analyze things like that, you know, more in depth than, than I have. And like, I, I find that, 
yeah, like I, I, I connect with that. I absolutely agree with that. I never, I never really thought about that. That I don't know. I guess I'm just bad at analyzing what it is that I'm doing. And that's like part of my whole problem, you know, is, is not really, that was part of my problem before not thinking about what I was doing, like slow and fast, two speeds. But then when I actually dove in, that's when I started learning. So yeah. what, what you should try doing is filming yourself while you're recording something complicated and see what you're doing. It's quite interesting. I've done it a few times. And uh, what, yeah, as I say, then I started noticing the fact that I wasn't breathing properly and it was well, just made me less tense. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of meditation, mindfulness meditation will help with your awareness of this stuff. You know, just taking it back to that app. I'm not saying that not saying that it's required for this, but if you were to do that and uh, as a byproduct of meditating in that way, you get more aware of things like your breath, things like tension in your body and, uh, you know, obviously things like stray thoughts. But uh, the, I think the more awareness you have over what's going on, the more action you can take or less action you can take to fix it, basically. So wouldn't be a bad idea for people suffering from tension issues to try that. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And the funny thing about, about the mindfulness and just generally being present is that I, I feel like the only time th this is going to sound so horrible. But I feel like the only time that I, that I really am truly living in the moment is when, you know, when you're in one of those sessions where you're just writing a song and you're just like deep, deep, deep in it. And you, you look down and all of a sudden eight hours has passed. Like that, that happens yep. to me all the time. And that's, that's like the only time when I feel like I'm like truly present and I'm able to just completely turn everything off except for what it is that I'm doing in that very moment. So that's, that's another thing that I've noticed about myself as far as like the being present and being mindful goes, is that like, the only time that I, I really honestly think the only time that I'm actually present is when I'm like deep, deep <laughs> yeah. in that creative space, you know? And that's it's like when the light bulb comes on moment. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know if that's cool or sad, but it's, it's something, you know? And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think, so I think that that's what everybody creative is striving for that flow state. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think what would be sad is if you didn't do any work unless you were in that state, because I think that that's kind of a loser mentality. I actually, I wrote a blog for Metal Sucks about this once that basically it's like uh, if you're following waves with peaks and troughs and a peak would be your period of inspiration. Trough would be when the light bulbs turned off. And if you're only waiting for those peaks, well, first of all, you can't predict when they're going to happen. So it's not like, it's not like a steady wave. It's not like a sine wave or something. It's a very, it's like uh, different frequencies going at all times. So you can't ever predict when those peaks are going to be. And so if you only do it when you think that peak is going to happen, you're going to be missing out on a bunch of the other peaks. And the overall quality and a volume of what you put out is just going to be lower as opposed to someone who just makes it a discipline like Mick Gordon. Yeah. And then when they're not in one of those peaks, then they're still getting something done. And then when they are in one of those peaks, they're already like warmed up and lubricated basically, like they're in the mode already. So they can actually capture their ideas as best as possible. Cause I think, I think you would agree that there's nothing shittier than getting inspiration happen 
and then being slowed down by technical shit that makes the inspiration go away. Like maybe your rig's not ready. Maybe you haven't played in a while and like you can't really, I mean, maybe you could go note by note, but then the idea might disappear by the time you're done with it. There's nothing worse than not being able to actually execute your inspiration when the inspiration happens. So I don't think it's sad to go for the inspiration. I think that's what we're all going for. I just think it's sad to only work when you're feeling that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you know, relating to that, I would say that most of the time when I go into that zone, it's always completely unexpected. Like, like I'll sit down to fuck around with some spitfire library I got or whatever. And I, and I'll just end up like playing with something and I'll be like, Oh, that's sick. And then it'll just snowball from there. And then all of a sudden it's 9 PM and it's, you know, my eyes are burning out of my skull and I didn't even realize it. <laughs> so yeah. 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 It's never, I've never, cause I get asked that a lot by people like, like, well, what's your writing? Like, what's your, what's your writing schedule? Or like, what do you, how do you harness creativity? And it's like, dude, I, I don't, I, I have, there, I have no good answer for that. It always, it seems it, like it always happens by accident. And that, that's when I've had my best moments, I think, is when I just sit down with coffee, open up Cubase, open up some library, fuck around, whether I'm, you know, trying to make drums, you know, cool new drum sound or cool new synthesizer or whatever. It's all, it's always me doing something else where I'm not really thinking about trying to write that it happens. It's always how it happens. That's definitely how the best music comes out for me as well. I found is when I'm not actively trying to write when I'm, I guess for lack of a better word is, um, it's probably not the best way to describe it, but the less of a fuck I give about the writing generally, the better it comes out. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. So I found the article. It's on metalsucks.net and it's called The Three Unbendable Rules of Creativity. And I wrote it in 2012. I actually think it's a really good short, short article about this exact topic. I may have read it. That was around the time where I was reading a lot of a lot of internet stuffs. It's got a really beautiful graphic I, I drew. Oh, really? Okay. I'll have to check it out afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put, I'll put a link to it in the chat, but yeah, if anybody, uh, listening is into this topic, that's, uh, that's what the blog is called and, uh, check it out. Uh, any, anyways, um, did, have, have you heard the Mick Gordon episodes? Oh, of course. I forget the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, I think I was asking an audience question, like, how do you deal with inspiration or whatever? And he was like, amateurs wait for inspiration, professionals get it done. It's something like that, which is the fucking truth. Dude, he's, that man is just such a conduit for sick ass shit. Like I can't even, be, and he's like, anytime I listen to him talk, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, I have nothing figured out. I don't know anything. He's got it dialed. Like what, like whatever it is to have dialed in to, to be that, to be Mick Gordon, he's got that shit on lock. And I love, uh, I love listening to that guy talk about anything. It's just, just pure inspiration to me. The thing is when you hear him talk, it's, no surprise at all that he's as good as he is, right? Like everything that he talks about kind of adds up. You know how sometimes you'll meet a savant type and it's like, how the fuck are they this good when they're like 
this incapable of living life or being an intelligent, like the kind of, they'll get lost in an airport or something, you know, like the, the kind of person that needs, they need like a handler to get them to the gate. Like John Frusciante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, that guy like doesn't understand like money, but he's like in the Red Hot Chili Peppers and he's John Frusciante. Like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yep. There are those types. And I think that their talent has to be so immense and they have to be in the just the right situation. And it happens. I know a few of those types too. Like, I'm not going to say who, cause I don't, yeah. I, this is not shit talking. Like I think a savant no, it's, can be a genius, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. but there's like, there's like this one drummer I know who's, uh, y- you know him too. He's like maybe the most incredible death metal drummer of this younger generation. Well, I'd say the 30 year old generation. Um, he does a ton of sessions, has played with a bunch of bands. He's short and he's like, he's like a fucking God, but he's, uh, he's definitely like a savant type. Like, you know that. I know who you're talking all about. He, <laughs> all he ever does is think dr- about drums when he's not playing drums. He's practicing drums when he's not practicing drums. He's playing double bass with fake drums. Like that's all he does. And I don't understand how he lives in the world, but he's so fucking badass that it works. However, something like what Mick Gordon does, which requires interfacing with lots of people with teams doing multiple versions of the same thing, having it be sick in the first place. Uh, but it's not just like he's a dude in a band who writes sick music and interfaces with the label. He's a dude who writes sick music, but then has to do like 75 versions depending on all these variables and deal with like a corporation and all this stuff. And you can't be a savant and pull that off. And so when I hear him talk, it's just like, okay, of course, of course this guy can do it because he's thinking like a tech entrepreneur, except he makes music. Yeah. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. Wild. I met him at, um, at our Brisbane show. When was when did we play there? I can't remember now. It seems like another lifetime ago with everything that's going on. But um, he came down to the Brisbane show. I had uh, I had lunch with him, a beer with him, and then he came to the show afterwards. And I definitely got that vibe from him. He just knows what the fuck he's doing. Um, it's yeah, it's quite crazy because you don't meet many of those <laughs> um, where they've really like yeah, just write. I mean, you guys have had to write to deadlines before, you know, with labels and stuff. But imagine when you're you've got the album uh, sorry the the game announced to go out on this day and you need to write 80 minutes of music in about a month <laughs> yeah dude no. and it's not just 80 minutes of music it's 80 minutes of music that's malleable and also non-repeating that's the other yeah. thing yeah dude, so when yeah. we write an album we're gonna have repeating choruses and repeating verses yeah but for stuff like that you can't have repeating parts it won't class as the extra minutes, basically. Not only that, but he's not working within the realms because like with what with what our bands do, you generally have like a core of like, okay, well, there's a drummer, there's a guitarist, there's a bass player, right? Like not only did he like write this, all this music, this insane music, but he did it in like the most unconventional, unique way with like that, the whole, uh, the whole sine wave thing, like running that through a series of gates and distortion boxes, you know, to, to create those sounds. Like he did it, he did all that shit, which was like crazy to begin with, but he did it in a completely unique and original way, you know? 
It's it's just it's mind blowing to me. That whole that the tech behind that is super fascinating to me. I don't know if he talked about it on the podcast he did with with uh, did. with you guys. Well, I, I mean specifically this next part where he did he talk about the David Bowie thing? No, but now I will ask him next time. Yeah. So I read somewhere that the the inspiration for his technique that he used of like running the sine wave through a series of of gates and distortion boxes came from the miking technique that they used on the David Bowie record Heroes. And what they did is, I guess they arranged a series of microphones in the live room where David was singing so that depending on the, like how loud he was singing, it would cause the microphones that were further away from him in the room with varying degrees of gating on them to open up the louder he got. So you got this like really interesting kind of like spatial gating effect. And apparently Mick heard about that technique and figured he could maybe apply it to distortion. And that's exactly what he did. And I think that's the sickest shit ever. That's actually pretty sick, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've got his distortion box here. It's the game changer plasma. It's what he used on a lot of it. Um, And it's definitely, it's instantly Mick (laughs) the moment I turn it on. That's a cool pedal. That's a the whole company is that whole company is cool because don't they also do the uh, the sustain pedal thing that looks like yeah. a yeah like just ne- next level thinking. But yeah, I tried to do a little of what Mick did on a very primitive level. Like I have a a Korg mini log here that I ran through a couple of different fuzz boxes and tried some gating stuff. I couldn't get it to obviously where he has it, but it, it that whole t- thing to me is just. It's so cool because no one, I don't think, as far as I know, no one's done that in extreme music. And, you know, he just did it on this enormous platform for one of the biggest selling games of all time, you know? So I wish that I knew him 10 years ago because he, what he, he did something that I was trying to do on the last Doth record that just was not going to happen because uh, the people involved just didn't get that vision i guess it was not compatible with like traditional metal like and i wish i knew him because uh we talked about it and he was like he told me exactly what he would have done and i was like god that's what i wish happened (laughs) he understood like it was this idea of having the rhythm guitar be fucking sick rhythm guitar but not be a full rhythm guitar tone have it be like half rhythm guitar and half synth but the synth not like that car racing sound from like the prog bands have be fucking nasty like like guitar ish but so it's this blended tone that is guitar sounds like guitar but it's got this these teeth that are unlike any other sort of uh, distorted guitar. Um, and this blend of, then he does that. And so I just wish I knew him 10 years ago. That's the, the Marty McFly syndrome, man. It's like, you, you might, not, you guys aren't ready for this, but your kids are going to love it. You know, sometimes they're just not ready. <laughs> <laughs> man, have you seen that movie lately, by the way? Yeah, all three of them. I watched them like first week of quarantine. <laughs> so, okay. I watched the first Back to the Future a few months ago. And you know what blew me away? That movie's really short. It is. Yeah. When I was a kid, I didn't realize that it's, that movie just flies by. It's so, so short. Like the time between when he goes back in time and he meets his dad and then he's at the dance and then all that shit goes down is like 
super, super, super short. Like I remember as a kid, it was like, it just felt like this long saga. It's yeah. Because it wasn't a cartoon. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. I had the same feeling for all movies when I was a kid. Yeah. Grown up movies. Like when you're a kid, like super taxing. So it's like, I, I remember accidentally seeing like 2001, a space odyssey when I was oh, like, no. well, yeah, when I was like <laughs> As a kid? 11. Yeah. Like just no, you know, no, no thanks. I mean now like sure. But yeah, sometimes, sometimes they just ain't ready, you know? I can't believe my parents let me watch Silence of the Lambs when I was 11. Yeah, that's scary. My parents took me to see The Sixth Sense when I was like eight years old. And it scared. <laughs> that's the, appropriate. Yeah. And it scared <laughs> the fuck out of me. Like I, I like wouldn't I wouldn't sleep for weeks. Like it, it deeply it deeply affected me. So, yeah, some some sometimes. <laughs> I saw yeah. Event Horizon when I was 10. Jesus yeah. Christ, dude. Yeah, it was, yeah. My, so there was it as well when I was a kid. That that really fucked me up, dude. That's not a movie to show a kid. Yeah, it's probably why the problems persist now. <laughs> I saw that movie on acid when I was really sick with a fever. Sick. And like I was sick. I don't know. This is you know different times. Yeah, and I was really sick, and I just dropped acid. And then was like, I'm going to the movies. You were sick and you were sick for yeah, taking acid. And then I didn't know anything about Event Horizon, yeah. but seeing Event Horizon on acid was <laughs> terrifying. Fucking, yeah. It was fucking <laughs> traumatizingly terrifying, basically. I think that movie's underrated. I it think is underrated. it's classically great that movie. And if they ever remake it, they're gonna fuck it up. I gotta watch it again. It's been it's been a long time. It's Maybe a little dated, but it's still fucking awesome. Terrifying still. Absolutely. Terrifying, yeah. yeah. It, it's definitely terrifying. Um, you know what's interesting is, have you noticed that the standards of what PG means has changed? Because I remember my parents showing me Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was like six. Oh, yeah. And awesome movie, of course, but like there's some fucked up shit in that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like dude getting chopped up by a airplane propeller like people yeah. melting like people getting shot in the face like spikes going through their heads like all kinds of just extreme stuff and it was pg how does that work i feel like they changed the they they must have had to have changed the standards for how they graded stuff like that like around the era that the 40 year old version and movies like that started coming out where like just super, super vulgar and like, uh, you know, graphic sexual stuff became like a cornerstone of like general comedy. Like, I feel like around that area is when they must have like had to have, you know, reconsider like their standards for things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. probably, but you know, like that, the stuff in Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't even, you don't even see that shit in PG 13 movies. Yeah, that's true. Like when someone gets shot in a PG 13 movie, you rarely ever even see blood. You just see them fall down. The shit in Raiders of the Lost Ark is rated R stuff, but it's being shown to kids. And then the second one, he pulls a f the fucking heart out of his chest <laughs> <Yeah>. in a <laughs> PG movie. <laughs> but also, you have to think um, Jurassic Park, the original, that was a PG as well, wasn't it? The nineteen ninety three was intense. it? That was I, PG. Well, I must have been because I I'm, saw I'm, it. I'm at looking the cinema. it up. I saw it at the cinema. Damn. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty also brutal Steven one. Spielberg. Also, no, it's PG thirteen. Ah, okay. 
How did I see yeah. it then when it came out? I saw it at the cinema when I was seven. Because did you go with parents? Yeah, but that doesn't mean you can get in, right? PG-13. You still have to be 13 years old. No, you you can go with a with an adult. Interesting. Yeah, you just can't get in there alone. Like, But then if you think about what's fucked up about that, who the hell would send kids under 13 <laughs> like 10 year olds to a theater alone goes to show we should just listen to everyone right we should actually listen to the advice yeah well maybe it's just different times now but like if i had kids and they were like nine years old there's no chance in hell i would just let them go to the movies alone in the day and age that we live in i'd put it on repeat for them <laughs> so the rating is stupid i think well, I might not have to worry about it anymore. I mean, no more, probably not going to be no more movie theaters after this. So don't. <laughs> Man, I get it. I feel like that was on the way anyways, but fuck, I want to see Tenet in a movie theater. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that looks fucking sick, doesn't it? Yeah. There's some stuff that's just like on the big screen. Like you just, you know, you, you, you got to see it on the big screen. I'm sure that some, you know, theaters will stay around, but I don't, it's not going to be like it used to be. That's for sure. Well, it hasn't been like it used to be for a long yeah, time. Yeah, true. Yeah. Like, it's not an event, unless it's like some big dork movie, uh, like a Marvel piece of shit. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's it's not a... Man, why do those movies get... I, I don't care if people like superhero movies. I even like some of them. But the way people act about the Marvel movies blows my mind. They act like they're like these cinematic masterpieces when they're basically glorified yeah. kids movies, which is fine. Like, cool. Kids movies are cool for kids, but why are people acting like the Marvel, like Avengers series are like Oscar worthy, like stuff? Yeah. I, I can't really get on board with them. There's, and plus there's so fucking many of them. Like I can't keep track of what the hell's going on. Like which like spin off of this story is the, like what's happening with this guy. Like, I just can't, I saw the Iron Man movies and like a couple of select other ones, but like, I, dude, I can't, I can't follow all those movies. There's just too many of them, and I have no idea what's going on half the time anyway. Such a time investment. But speaking of riffs, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to. You started talking about something that we didn't talk about when you were creating guitar tones and learning how to do that, and then also learning about how different pressure on the strings created different kinds of sounds. How did you figure out the balance between what the gear does versus what your hands do? And then to take that a little further, what would you suggest for people who are trying to get good at riffs? What kind of stuff do you think they should focus on? Well, I would say as far as getting getting better at the riffs and the rhythm playing, I would just generally advise people to turn the gain down. Uh, that was a yes. huge part of me... Yeah, that was a huge part of, of me getting real with myself and realizing that like, hey, maybe I, maybe I suck. <laughs> like maybe I should not, maybe I should be a lot better, you know, like uh, like having tons of gain and then like no, no, no mid range on top of it. Like that was like a big thing for me because, you know, I was a, I was a huge, in addition to like Lamb of God and stuff, like I was also like a huge Pantera fan. And like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about guitar tone, but I knew that everyone said Dimebag like had that scoop tone. So like, what did I do? You know, did the same thing, but like, doesn't work like that when you're playing with another guitar player and don't work when you're not Dimebag. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work when you're not Dimebag. So like, I, you know, I think just generally backing the gain off so that you can be more aware of your mistakes is, is important. You know, I, I do this, this thing. I'm, I'm a Kemper guy. 
and I do this thing with my with all the profiles that I use that was actually uh, Wes told me about it. We boost like 2.5 by like 2 dB. It's, it's total like sounds like stupid nerd shit that doesn't matter. But like whatever that does to a guitar sound made all of my mistakes come directly to the surface and just like, you know, and honestly like made me a better player because it, it allowed me to hear myself better. I know that sounds very specific and very lame, but like for whatever reason, just like, you know, cranking that up and like backing my gain off was like a big part of, you know, I mean the gain thing first, of course, but like just being able to like hear your mistakes is like such an important part of, of becoming a better player, I think. So yeah, I don't know, that would be, I don't know, the 2.5 thing might be of reaching a little bit, but just generally like, you know, being able to hear your mistakes, I think that's a, that's a real important, important part of being able to grow as a guitarist. Like, even if you can't hear yourself back, like you don't have the, you know, a, a recording setup or whatever, I think just being able to have a guitar tone where you can hear what you're actually playing is is an, a very important thing. And I totally forget what the other question was. I'll get to that in one second. I actually have a perfect example of what you're talking about. So I completely agree. Turning the gain down keeps you honest. The I think one of the mistakes, like, first of all, I don't think there's anything wrong with lots of gain and effects and all that shit, especially when you know how to play and, uh, and it serves the part. But I think guitar players trick themselves into thinking that they're better than they are. And so finding ways to keep yourself honest are great. And if you keep yourself honest and you get truly good at rhythm, you can play sick sounding stuff at very low gain. And then if you then turn the gain higher and add the effects and all that, you'll still sound sick. And a perfect example of low gain that still sounds heavy as fuck is that track Igor did with George Fisher. Have you ever heard it? Oh yeah. I, I think I heard it when it first came out, but I wouldn't be able to like hum it back to you or anything. I can't remember what it sounds like. I don't think anyone can hum it back. Oh, okay. But uh <laughs> here I, I put it in the in the chat. But uh it's called Parpaing for anyone looking. P A R P A I N G featuring George Fisher and the artist is called Igor, I G O R R R. Igor is like the modern Mr. Bungle and uh is one of the most insane things I've ever heard. But this song features a very low gain, heavy guitar that sounds incredible. And uh, my take is if you can make low gain sound this heavy, you can make anything sound heavy, basically. Yeah, for sure. And I think also having your gain a little bit lower, it, it also kind of forces you to, to maybe notice things that you didn't notice about how doing different things interacts with the sound of the guitar. Like, I, I guess I never you know, when I had my gain dimed all the time, I like never noticed that like, oh, well, like digging into the strings in this way gives me this effect because it was all just like, you know, basically just like flatline, just gained the heck out. And when I backed it off a little bit, I, I that's when I started realizing that like, oh, well, yeah, you can, you can play in a death metal band and still have dynamics in your rhythm playing. Like it, like you, it, it, that's a, a totally like possible thing. So yeah, that, that was another part of it was just noticing with a little less gain, you know, how much of a difference just like angling your hand a different way or like digging in slightly harder could completely change the way that your guitar sounds. Brown. <laughs> yes. So this topic right here, I know is near and dear to your heart. Oh yes. So, uh, I'll just lead off by saying that, I mean, 
if you've heard the amanuensis, amanuensis album, you yeah. know the rhythm tone is crushing and fans will know that you did that on a pod or whatever. But that's not what matters. And what I'm saying, what matters is that it's actually super low gain. And back in 2015, Finn and I, Finn from URM and I put up a tone store. We were selling IRs and tone packs back, back in the day. And, uh, we did one with Brown's exact pod settings from that album and people downloaded them and tried and they thought that we sold them the wrong thing because it's so low gain. They didn't understand. I tried playing through it too. And I was like, what? So it, yeah. Yeah. Like the way, so the way you play is what made it so fucking heavy. So please elaborate. I think that that's like one of those uh, things that guitar players don't really get until they've kind of been playing for a number of years. Cause I most certainly didn't, but you know, when you watch James Hetfield and then you started playing guitar, you're learning mastery of puppets and you're like, Oh, this is fucking easy. And then you see him a couple of years later and he's down picking the whole fucking thing. And you're like, Oh, and then it's like, sounds heavy, sounds really articulate and you don't have that same sound. And then when you start going to that and you start hitting harder, turning down the gain, it's like, oh, I can create so much more aggression and make this tone sound heavier by having the gain much, much lower. Um, and I, I think the, the aggression doesn't necessarily come from the amount of gain. I think it comes with the authority of the player to a degree. I think the tone can shape it to, you know, like obviously if you scoop a little bit of mids and boost the highs, it's going to sound more abrasive. But generally, I think that the tone of what you're trying to achieve is mostly in the hands. And I think that that is probably why that, I mean, that, that pack, I mean, I, it doesn't sound particularly great to me either, you know, when I'm playing through it, cause it's so dry, <laughs> but I know that if I play that part well, that it's going to sound good because there's no gain and it worked with what was going on. So I think that that is also a product of, um, getting a guitar tone as well, thinking about what else is going on in the mix. Cause it's not just the guitar, as you said earlier, you know, when you listen to the Lamb of God record and everything slammed together in yeah. one, it's not just the guitar tone you're hearing. You're hearing the combination of how everything works together. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that plays a big part in it too. Yeah. And I think that, uh, there is always some difference in the, the tones that we end up using on our albums versus what I would use live. Like I know, I know, like on our last record, it was like a blend of like three different amps. Uh, and for whatever reason, like live, the sound that I like ended up going with was just one third of, of that blend. Like I had the, the full blend, like I have the, the rhythm tone from the record, like, you know, right on my camper. But for whatever reason, like just the, the Mesa section of that rhythm mix was like what worked best for me live. And it just so happens that that's the lowest gain guitar tone that was part of that three amp blend. It's quite interesting that, isn't it? Cause I, I definitely turn up my gain slightly in a live situation, mainly because it feels more fun to play through more than anything, especially when playing heavier stuff. But yeah, when it comes to the actually recordings, I actually try and turn the noise gate almost completely off as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Ballsy. Because then at that point you hear as many mistakes as possible. <laughs> yeah. As well. And, and I'm, I'm kind of against the whole editing thing. Well, not against it, but there's a certain level of 
realism and groove that can't be replicated once you start over comping and over editing. So I like to be able to hear all the little string noises. And if the string noise is like in the performance and it sounds good, then I'll keep it rather than just cutting it out and stuff like that. So I think that's probably why most of the time I play solo gain is so that I can actually hear all those mistakes. It's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would, I would agree with that. I think it just goes back to like what I was saying. Like I like to, I guess I just like to be aware of, of, of my mistakes if I'm, if I'm making them and like how I can improve, you know, upon my technique and like having less gain definitely is, has definitely helped me with that, especially live too, man, because it's like, I know, I know my guitar tone is naturally pretty low gain and has a good hump in the mid range. But then I know additionally our, you know, our sound guys boosting, will give me a little mid range boost in front of house. So I know that I'm like extra, extra out there. You know what I mean? So, uh, it's scary because if you, <laughs> if you know, if you, if you're having a bad night, everybody's going to know about it. But at the same time, like when you have those, those killer nights, it feels, it feels that much better. You know, you, you, you made it happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know those vibes. <laughs> yeah. So the second part of the question, which uh, I feel like you did kind of cover though, was more about, I mean, when you were on your tone quest, what did you decide was hands and what did you decide was gear? It was probably the first time that my band was able to record with Carson Back in probably 2010, he recorded our very first EP. That was the first time Carson Slovak, FYI. Yeah, that was the first time that that we had ever been to like a quote unquote real studio, and you know we're able to see that like, hey, you know, our other guitar player, he's playing the same guitar tone that I'm playing, but it sounds absolutely fucking horrible when he uses the same sound as me. So I guess that's probably like when I realized that you know, there was a good, a, a pretty significant, uh, chunk of, 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 uh, a player's sound is in the, is in the hands. That's when I like first became aware of it. But interestingly, I think through using the Kemper for six years or whatever, or five or six years at this point, I think realizing that with profiles like that, I can't use anyone else's profiles. They just sound horrible when I use them. The only profiles that I can use are profiles that I've taken from either, me actually playing or from me running a DI of a performance that I played, like those are the only profiles that I think sound good on the Kemper are the ones that like were basically constructed from my performance. Like I've had, I've had dudes, producers that, that I'm friends with send me their, their packs and, you know, I'll throw them on the Kemper and like, it's, it's cool or whatever, but it just ain't there, I guess, is 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 the the simplest way to put it. And uh, I, I think that through using the Kemper, I've, I've kind of like realized like how much of my sound is in my hands and like what works for me and what doesn't. I know that's like a stupid thing to bring the, you know, one piece of gear into the discussion, but I really do think that through using this thing for, you know, as many years as I've used it is uh, kind of helped me realize, you know, like how much of my sound is in my hands and how much of, you know, other players sounds is in their hands and how their sound and their hands don't necessarily work for what I'm doing, I guess. Actually, yeah. I think the Kemper is the perfect example to use for that. Cause I noticed the same thing back when I was first fucking with it. Uh, you know, I'd make a profile or we would make a profile back at the studio and, uh, it would work fantastically for what we were working on at the time. But I'd, 
download somebody else's profile that I heard in use and it sounded awesome when they used it and I'd get it and I'd be like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never had good luck with using other people's stuff. It just like, I'm, I'm sure part of it's me being like, I want to be original, my own person or whatever. But like, I, I, you know, I think a bigger part of it is that it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Cause I guess, I guess it's true. I guess tone is in the hands. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's one stage further actually. So during the last um, album recording, for monuments we actually profiled the amp that we used which was a 6534 pv uh, with a boost in front of some sort funnily enough it's my least favorite to play through amp because it feels wrong to me but it sounded great so i you know i went with it but <laughs> we profiled it and the engineer there um his name was jim he works with um what's his name again uh carl bone Carl Bone, if you're familiar, he's done While She Sleeps. I know AL's familiar. I think he's had him on the podcast um, and for a URM um, thing. But yeah, so he's like, I can profile this amp and you won't be able to tell the difference between the amp and the Kemper. And in blind tests, I think we did it over 10 times between me and uh, Oliver, Ollie, sorry. <laughs> and uh, we guessed the Kemper every single time. Yeah. Were you just hearing it back or were you, you were playing through it? Playing through it. It was okay. not hearing it back. I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. It was really, really close. What it was is the, the difference in dynamics. It didn't have that squishiness of a tube amp, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, for the dynamics, when you like do scratches and stuff like that, it almost felt like the Kemper was on 127. Yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better term. That was the only thing missing. So I think it's going to be pretty amazing where that technology goes in the future because i think it's really really close at this point like audibly it's there just in the hands it wasn't quite there and it's quite interesting how different our hands react when we play through different pieces of gear as well yeah with the feeling thing like yeah i, I totally know what you're talking about um we we kind of lucked out on this last one uh this this last record and like the main tone that we've been using live was it was a an old uh, Revision G uh, two channel triple rectifier uh, with EL thirty fours in it, and our power amp that we use is a is a Mesa two ninety. And for whatever reason, uh, that profile interacting with the the it's an old like or no, it's not a two ninety. It's a, a fifty fifty. Sorry, uh, it's like one of the old style ones, you know, with like the the ugly knobs on it and yeah. stuff. Um, for whatever reason, like I, I've had that experience with. A lot of Kemper profiles for sure, but like for whatever reason, the way that the cab interacts with the power amp interacts with that profile specifically, it just works. It like it, it like that thing that you're talking about. It doesn't it doesn't happen for me on that one, and it's probably only something that I would notice. But I know I I absolutely know what you're talking about, and uh, audibly, I think we're at a point with guitar modeling where it's like. You know, because I get, I'm sure, as I'm sure you get asked all the time, like XFX or Pod or Kemper or Neural, like all, <laughs> like what, what's the right answer? You know, and like, dude, it's like, I think audibly we're at a point where everything's pretty damn close, right? It's just like the little tiny things, like what you're talking about with like feelings here and there. I'm actually, I, I'm not a, uh, a huge authority on, uh, I mean, I, I've used tube amps, of course, but I don't have like a sick collection or anything like that. So I can't really like AB. So I don't, I think I'm kind of like out of the race as far as like being able to tell the difference, like at the drop of the hat, uh, at the drop of a hat. But uh, I, I do know what you're talking about for sure. I've just been playing the Kemper for so long that I think I'm like, my brain has been erased a little bit, maybe. <laughs> 
No, as I say, I, I couldn't audibly tell the difference at all. Um, it sounded great, but it was just the the feel of it. That was what it came. And that's kind of actually why I gravitated towards the Line 6 stuff. For some reason, to me, it kind of feels right. I can't, maybe it's just because I played it for so long, like like you played the Kempers. I mean, I've had my yeah. XT Pro here since 2006. Hell yeah. Um, and it's still working. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think part, partly it's also what you get used to. I think you learn your way around what you're playing as well, to a degree. Yeah, that's the same thing that I tell everybody about DAWs is the same thing that I tell people now about guitar modelers. It's like, hey, whatever works for you. Like, you know, you get asked, what's the best doll, you know, and, and, and really it's like whatever you, it's whatever you're comfortable Whatever you're with. good at. Yeah. Like get good, like pick one and just get good at it. Like whatever works for you. Like that's what you should use. I, I think, I don't know. <laughs> so a perfect example of this is uh, if you go watch the Creative Live metal recording boot camp that I made with Monuments back in 2016, we we documented this actually happening where we tried to record the guitars one day on a rig that Brown just was not feeling, and it was it was just a bad day. And uh, the next day we we got a rig that he was feeling. We got it in at six in the morning and set it up, and then we got the tracks done in like an hour and a half or something. the The day one was like a twelve hour brutal ass shitty day <laughs> because the tone was just fucking you up, man. And then, yep. uh, yeah. And then the next day with the right tone, just got it done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the that's, truth. That's a big part of it. Having a tone that, uh, I, just kind of, just kind of works for you. That's, that's a huge piece of the puzzle for sure. Also something that you went on about before where your other guitar player sounded crap through your sound. Al also went into de- we went into detail on this on the same boot camp actually where it was um, me and Ollie um, trying through the same tone and it, again like you know Ollie's an incredible guitar player but it just sounded so different because it's you can't it's two different players it's just always going it's never going to sound the same never yeah that's why I like you know dime sounds like dime you know <laughs> yeah absolutely. Have you guys ever run into a, a guitar player who just the way that they fret just makes the guitar naturally, uh, inti- like it sounds like it's not intonated properly, like it just sounds out of tune? Yes. All the time when when I was recording. Man, and uh, good guitar players will sometimes do it, but I, I remember that there are certain guitar players, none of, no, no famous guitar players ever did this, but... Uh, I would be recording somebody and be like, "Hey, man, your chord position is pulling out of tune. Let's uh, let's work on that." He's, the answer is like, "I've been playing guitar eighteen years, and no one's ever told me that before." Like huff, 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 and then so I was like, "Give me the guitar," and I played it, and it's in tune. It's like you see, yeah, no, it, that's something that I have to give direct credit to. I think I talked about this on the last podcast, but. We recorded our first record with Eric Rutan, who's like notoriously a. Uh, yes, we talked. We talked about Eric. Just if anyone is curious, sorry to interrupt you. Just real quick, this is a great story. I just want people to know that Brody Utley was on URM podcast episode one ninety three. Go on. Yeah, I never really knew 
how to hear stuff like that until we did that record with him. And he introduced me to strobe tuners, which first time, if you've never seen a strobe tuner before, it's like looking at a spaceship and, and just being able to hear that, like, especially with those like lower, like, especially like in F sharp where we tune those like real low, like octave kind of chords, like, man, if you're, if you're not like right on the money with those, it just sounds like the worst thing ever. And there was definitely several sessions during that recording process where we would spend eight hours. Cause I mean, Eric's not a, he's like a zero edits guy, you know what I mean? And we would just sit there for eight hours working on one section because of, you know, little teeny tiny movements with like those real low octave chords that would make it just sound absolutely horrible. And after that, figured out how to properly fret stuff a lot better. But yeah, it's it's a crazy thing. Your guitar can be in tune, but it's not. It's weird. It's never yeah. in tune. It's never in tune. <laughs> actually, I just recorded something today, actually, and uh, it's in C sharp. So all yeah. the way down uh, below okay. your F yeah. sharp. And I've recorded it, I think, mm, minus the amount of takes, probably about 10 times today. Actually, thought think it was tight enough, and it's still fucking out of tune. It's making me very unhappy thinking about it. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> that shit used to drive me nuts. But uh, Brody, we have some questions from our listeners. Do you mind if I ask you some? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So, Owen Roberts says, "Hi, Brody. When writing, do the drums or riffs come first for you guys? Where owls know my name is one of my favorites." In years, uh, I would say that most of my most of my best stuff comes from a very simple melodic idea or a very simple rhythmic idea. It's 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 usually one or the other. But I would say most of the time, I'll come up with uh, just a simple melody and use that as a, a platform to build the rest of the song off of. And then from there, I'll. Usually, how my writing process works is I need to keep myself inspired as I go. So I'll make each section of a song as I write it. You know, I'll add all of the layers of everything you know that I want to add as I go, so that by the time it's I'm finally done writing a song, I have like a totally uh, realized piece of music. So uh, I would say that nine times out of ten, it starts with a very simple melodic idea. So I, I guess a riff, and then it just snowballs from there. Usually what happens is if I get caught in a section of a song where I'm hung up, I'll open up, you know, uh, like the, the tune track, uh, like grooves or whatever, cause you can buy those MIDI packs and like, I'll listen us through to some of those and see if I can get any interesting ideas for, for stuff, uh, drum wise for a part that I might not have any, uh, ideas for, but usually it's, it's just a riff. I would say. Question from Joel Moore. Is there a form of musical expression, be it a production technique or guitar technique, that you haven't been able to incorporate into a Rivers song or album yet? For example, maybe you can sweep at 400 beats per minute and melt faces, but it just hasn't found its way into your musical output yet. I would say no, because I'm guilty of shoehorning stuff into my own music just I don't know. If, I don't really, I try not to exist in, 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 at least since the last record, I've tried not to really exist in any lines. I'm like, if I, if I come up with something cool, you know, if there's a, 
if there's a theremin or a, you know, whatever that weird instrument that Radiohead always uses, the keyboard, you know, like if there's, if there's some weird thing, I'm probably just going to do it because uh, I, I have no control over myself, I guess. So I hope that, <laughs> I hope that answers the question. <laughs> All right. Vaughn Treboulet says, you guys have a great sense of layering melodies, even in the heaviest parts of your tracks. How do you go about composing and fitting all these layers in a sonic space? I know what they're talking about. Usually what happens is if I'm going to add any kind of like atmospheric overdubs, spacey kind of weird overdubs, usually I'll first I'll pick a tone, you know, depending on what I want. Do I want a really washed out sound? If that's the case, then I'll go for like you know, delay in front of the amp kind of sound. So you get that really like, you know, washy tone. Or if I want a more precise kind of sound, I'll go more for delay and reverb in the effects section. So usually I'll pick a tone first, then I'll usually hunt for the root and then go from there, depending on like how weird I want to get with it. Sometimes if there's a riff going on, sometimes I'll just start with like the root note and just kind of like follow the riff. And then other times I'll go down like a, I'm a big fan of post-rock music and some of my favorite bands are, you know, are like This Will Destroy You and Explosions in the Sky. And basically those bands are kind of like little mini, they write little mini symphonies where they, they're like doing all these different melodic lines off of one another, which is why I like them so much because it's kind of like a, a symphony, but with guitars. But yeah, I would say usually I'll just start with like a, a root note and then kind of just go from there depending on how weird I want to get with it. And for me, it's like I said before, it's just keeping myself inspired. Like I, I, I don't really, like when I write, I never write a song that's just like rhythm tracks you know, I'll just record all the rhythm tracks and then I'll go back and add my overdubs. Like I'm always adding that stuff as I go. I'm adding, you know, if I'm, if I'm adding any contact libraries, I'm doing that as I go. So very much for me, building as I go is, is such a huge part of my writing process because I need to hear that, that full production sound and, and be like, yeah, this sounds, this sounds good before I can actually move on to the next section. Makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's exactly how I feel as well. Okay. So Here's one from uh, Daniel Schmidt. Hi, Brody. I saw Rivers of Nile live in Wiesbaden and was blown away by your stage presence while performing as well as jokes in between songs. Did it come naturally or from experience being a touring musician? Did he... Wait, did you throw in the jokes between songs part or was that part of the question? That's in there. That's in the question. Really? I don't ever say anything on stage. Well, I don't know. I guess it's just touring. And what the hell is he talking about? I don't know. I, I'm definitely not a comedian well, on stage. Is he maybe, maybe he's talking about the full band stage presence? Oh, maybe. Uh, we just, I don't know. All of our favorite bands are bands that still headbang on stage, I guess. I get. I don't know. I feel like there's, there's this certain thing about standing up on stage and playing technical music and, and being completely still that's become... Uh, more common these days. And I guess we're still just a bunch of dummies that like to, to headbang a whole bunch. I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that one. I guess just touring a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we all, we're all like pretty aware of uh, how each other act on stage. So I don't know. I guess we just kind of learn how to function as a unit from touring so much, really. I don't have like a, you know, I never like stood in front of the mirror and practiced or anything it just kind of happened i guess <laughs> i think stage presence comes from confidence and confidence comes from doing it a lot 
Yeah, watch and just watch Meshuggah videos. That's how you learn how to have six stage presence. That's what I think anyway. Not anymore. <laughs> they they've got the lights, man. The lights. Yeah, but like the the like the the Martin uh Hagstrom headbang where he does a side to side thing, like that's oh, some yeah, of the that hard, was sick. The, yeah. That's the hardest shit ever. Like the, in on the uh on the the live DVD when they're playing New Millennium Sinai Christ and he's just his guitar's like down at his ankles and he's like headbanging from side to side. I think that's the coolest shit ever. Still do. I'll, <laughs> I, I don't care how, how many, how many, you know, uh, radio head arguments I get into with people. I'm still going to think that, <laughs> that Meshuggah is the sickest shit ever on stage and that everyone should, should, uh, should watch their videos. <laughs> did you, um, did you ever see the humiliative live video when, uh, it's when Jens has like a skullet? Not, no. Yeah. Like, so he's just got like a ponytail at the back. Um, but yeah, Morton in that one is spinning on one foot whilst headbanging. Oh, I think I saw, was that when they were playing those like really weird looking wooden guitars and Martin no. was wearing like a, a hockey jersey? He was wearing a hockey jersey, but this was pre then. So this okay. must have been, it must've been 1996 or something. Cause they're, they're wearing hockey yeah. shirts as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like, if you've ever tried to do that live without falling over, <laughs> I had actually never heard Humiliative until that live DVD came out. And then I went back and, and found that. And what oh, a- dude, non is the, is the best. It's my favorite by far. It really is. And that shit came out in what? 94? 1994. <laughs> dude, what? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. But to answer the question, just watch a bunch of uh, Michigan videos. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question. This is from Koi Roskowski. Your last album should have been album of the year for 2018. It incorporated every style of rock, jazz, and metal. This melting pot style created a perfect connection throughout the album. The next album, you say, it will have a different feel because each album is representing a season of the year. Heard that on a YouTube interview. How much pressure as a songwriter do you feel you have to experiment more on the next album? Uh, I would say that I, I don't, I don't know. I don't really feel the pressure. I think that we're after releasing that last record, we're kind of in a unique place with our fans where I think they're expecting us to, they, they want us to do something that's uh, unlike what we just did. Uh, and I think that that's a good spot to be in. Yeah. Like, I mean, just, if you want to look at it, like just purely numbers wise, I mean, our two most popular songs streaming wise and, and YouTube wise are, are over six and a half minutes long. So, I mean, that tells you something about the people that are listening to our music. I mean, they're, they're people that are like sitting down and, you know, paying attention to stuff, right? Like they, like they, we don't write short songs usually. So, um, yeah, and it just I feel like we're in like a, a pretty cool place with with people um, who listen to our band. Where like a lot of people got into our band because of that last record, and kind of went back and investigated our records before that as a result of getting into this um, most recent record. But I think we're in a cool place where people are are almost expecting us to basically reinvent the band uh, on each record just because of how viciously we did that on the last record, which is the record that most people got into us on. Brody, it's been awesome talking to you again. Yeah, thanks for ha- having me, guys. Thank you for coming on. Glad to actually chat to you properly, not just over the blue text. I know. <laughs> yeah, the blue, the blue, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it was good uh, Good to be on here and, and uh, 
good to talk to you again, Al, and good to finally talk to you, uh, John. Hopefully next time we cross paths, I'll actually get to meet you in person because I we somehow like narrowly avoided each other uh, the last time we were in the same building together. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I um, I saw obviously um, your band just before Fit for an Autopsy yeah. came on, and then I ended up hanging out in um, Carnifex's dressing room for a little bit. Um, yeah, it's probably, and then I had to leave to go play a show. Dude, so that's, that's probably, tour though, man. It's it like is. <laughs> you sometimes, you know, most people, you know, if you don't get to say goodbye to everybody, most people get upset about that. But when when you tour, you just know how. That's how it is, man. You, sometimes you don't get to say hello to everybody. <laughs> And sometimes you get you go to the show and then you have to leave before the band finishes, which is actually what happened with Fit for an Autopsy. I had to leave just before they finished. So I, could, uh, I didn't even say goodbye to Patrick. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, so it happens. Goes. Yeah, it happens. Hell yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cheers, boss. Cheers. I think me, you, and Brody kind of share similar roles in uh, in our projects. How do you mean? Not saying other people don't write. We know that other people in bands write, but uh, I was always the main writer. You're the main writer. Brody's the main writer. And we all learned to produce our own music as a means to an end. Yeah, had to. Yeah, because there was no other way around it. <laughs> At least when I started, nobody knew how to record metal around me, and there was no other way. Things were different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the early 2000s, the, the style of music that I sort of fell into so to speak it was so unique and you couldn't find a drummer that was able to really do it so it required the knowledge and understanding of how to record the music myself in order to portray the actual vision and i think it's probably similar in your situation as well isn't it yeah 100 percent. there was no other way to do it uh required also learning how to program drums yeah <laughs> I mean, like all the stuff that people do now that's like a, a part of just the vocabulary was an exploratory thing back then that people just kind of figured out because they had no choice. Like loading the original drum kit from Hell Samples into Native Instruments Battery. <laughs> yeah, I used the shit out of battery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like everyone's got it easy now. That was unbelievably frustrating the first time you tried to do that. Yeah. I definitely think that there's different challenges now, but the thing, the main thing that's different is that there's a ton of information on how to do things. Exactly. And there's a ton <laughs> of examples on how to do things. So there, there's use case scenarios. There's like a whole community, hundreds of thousands of people who, do this. Uh, back then it was like, you'd be lucky if two other people in your town kind of did it. Exactly. Like, and even then they probably had the same amount of knowledge as you and were working it yeah, out for themselves. Pretty much zero. <laughs> yes. Like I think that, um, well at the time in the early two thousands, I always resorted to forums. Yeah, me too. Like the Sneet forum, man, I punished Andy so much. <laughs> Someone actually, posted a screenshot of something I wrote to Andy in like 2006 and it was so embarrassing. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I said something like, thank you for your prompt response or like uh, uh, some Punisher line. <laughs> I think we've all been there. You know, that's the only way to learn really, isn't it? To punish Andy Sneap? To punish just like, you know, you don't really, when you're that young as well, you don't really necessarily think about necessarily how annoying you possibly have been for this person. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. I, I didn't think I was being annoying. Oh, but now you did. <laughs> well, yes and no. So I don't get annoyed by URM or Riff Hard students asking for knowledge at all. I mean, that's why we exist, right? But sometimes I get annoyed when people act super entitled to me as a human. Yeah. Like, uh, if we have like a way for them to ask questions, like in the Facebook groups and like systems set up for that, that a lot of thought has gone into, but then they hit me up on DM anyways, which that's not the part that bothers me. But like, uh, if I don't respond for instance, or don't respond fast enough, sometimes you'll get comments like, Oh, too good to talk to your, uh, to your customers, huh? Shit like that. <laughs> I'm sure you've gotten stuff like that. Um, when you have been able to respond. I haven't actually gotten that with any of my students. Obviously, I've had it in the past. No, I mean, Monuments fans probably at some point. Oh, yeah, 100, 100%. I mean, it's kind of impossible to reply to absolutely everything because you literally wouldn't do anything else, especially when an album comes out. I get a million messages and you can't, there's just not enough time. To, if I re responded to all of these people consistently, because you know when you answer, they're going to ask something else. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's a never, you know, it's a, it's, it never finishes. And not to say that, you know, I don't appreciate, you know, fans getting in touch with me or anything like that. It's just a case of, there's just, if I reply to every single person, then I just wouldn't have any time to do anything else. You wouldn't even have enough time to reply to every single person anyways, even if that's all you did. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's why, you know, Riffard's there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's why now when people hit me up asking questions, I always direct them to either the Riffard or the URM group. Um, and if they're not signed up, I'm like, yo, sign up if you want the information. Like, there's a reason for why I set it up. And part of it has to do so that I don't have to answer 300 different messages on Facebook every single day that also has all the same questions. Yeah. Well, that, that's <laughs> the other thing is, uh, by sending a DM, nobody else is benefiting from it. So the only person who's benefiting, if I answer a DM, the only person benefiting is the person who asked. If they ask the same question in the group, everybody who's reading that can benefit from the answers. Plus you can get way more people responding and giving good answers, maybe shitty answers too, but uh, there's, it's a, you can scale that. Whereas the one-on-one -on -one DM thing, you can't scale. No, you can't. So it ultimately, I'm not going to say it's a waste of time, but it's a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very true. Yeah. I guess another way you could just do it is like, you know, you could take the question that's been asked and ask it in the group as well. But that's what I tell them to do. Oh Yeah. I guess that's what it is then. They should go ask it, not me. Yeah, they definitely should, yeah, because then it then people will respond as well with their answers. Yeah, something I get sometimes is uh, people are afraid to ask it in the group, so they'll DM me. Is, is you reckon that's like sort of a little bit of anxiety? Like they're worried that they're going to get ridiculed for asking a question? Because I, I, I mean, yes, I've definitely that's been That's what there. I think it is. Yeah, because I I like, going back to the early 2000s, again, when I was on forums, definitely when I would first sign up, I'd be terrified of posting anything because I didn't know the reaction of the people. 
But I guess that's a good thing about what, what we do with the URM groups and the Riffard groups is that they're constantly monitored to make sure that we have no negativity within them. And that's, I think that's also a big part of why it's so important to sign up to these two, you know, learning platforms, because people shouldn't be scared of asking questions and wanting to learn because we're all there for the same thing. Yeah. I consider them to be like an online oasis. And uh, actually I've gotten that comment from a lot of people that they've never been in a community before where uh, they can actually ask questions that are basic, I guess, or they're so used to asking something on literally any other group or forum and then just getting roasted for it by not even roasted from people who know better, just roasted by people who don't even know better, who don't know what the fuck they're doing, who have never done anything in their lives and are just fucking dicks. Like that <laughs> That's internet culture for you. And uh, when we started URM, that it was, uh, we took a super hard line on that. That's like the one thing that we're militant about. If people are, are dicks, we kick them out. Give them one warning, basically being like, pull off the throttle, dude. But uh, <laughs> if they if they can't comply, they're out. And we, it, there hasn't been that many, but no. uh, we don't put up with that shit at all. There's no room for it. Now, what I think is really interesting is that I find that some people who are super nice within our communities, Riff Hard and URM, you see them in other groups and they're fucking dicks. So it's really interesting that if you define boundaries and the rules of a culture, people, if they respect you, they'll, they'll go along. And then when you put them someplace where there are no boundaries, no culture enforced, nothing, they'll just, they'll act like barbarians basically. <laughs> I also think that it's to do with the surroundings. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like That's what I it, mean by culture. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. My sentiments then. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, we should go back to talking about Brody and songwriting really. Cause I think that every band has a main songwriter and it's so important to get that skill set in check. And I think that it's a skill set that some people suffer with. Some people, some people are really good at it. I say most people suck at it. Suffer <laughs> from it. Uh, I think that the the biggest thing that I've noticed, besides no talent, okay. So outside outside of the realm of people who just don't have talent, within the realm of people who do have talent, uh, a lot of people sell themselves short with their writing by going with the first idea they have, or not developing ideas further. Just writing one idea, then another one, then another one, then another one and gluing them all together because that just happens to be what they wrote chronologically without really exploring the full potential of every idea and making an actually cohesive song. I, I think a lot, I mean, I've struggled with that in the past as well. And we all, uh, that's, yeah, that's how I know. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that to a degree, like we learn something new on the instrument we write around this technique and think it sounds cool in that moment because we've just written it. And as you say, we'd never try to develop it further because we already feel like we've shown off that new technique rather than thinking I could do this with it or this, or maybe if I change this one note, it will make it infinitely better. And, and a lot of the time people don't really think to that sort of clinical level of songwriting. It's definitely a unique thing, but that's, you know, that's where the Michael Jacksons and 
you know, all those artists came from just from being super clinical about every single moment of their song. Yeah. Which takes sometimes intervention from somebody else. So like when you're talking about a Michael Jackson, well, he did have one of the most amazing producers (laughs) on the planet, right? Helping him. Yeah. But you also, the initial idea has to be good. Of course. The, the initial idea has to be good, but I guess what I'm getting at is that, uh, Sometimes people need a little bit of help to figure out exactly what the potential is in their ideas, which is a part of what you do on Riff Rescue. Of course. Yeah. On Riff Rescue, I will take someone's idea, a riff, sometimes a whole song, and I'll take what they've written and try it in different ways, multiple different ways. And this can range from something as simple as you know, taking three or four notes out of a phrase that they've given me and try positioning it in different points of the bar or try it in different points of the scale um, to create different moods, to create, you know, different tensions. And also just as simple as something as trying something in different octaves can really change the meaning of of the part. I mean, you know, I could be speaking the same words to you but if i scream them then the expression is different and i feel the same way when you change an octave of a, a, a part it can be in the same notes but in a different octave and it just completely changes everything about it something as simple as that and i'll do all these little things to these pieces of music that um some of our students have submitted to be rescued and it and it just shows the many different places that you can take your riffs, your music, without really necessarily thinking too hard about it. Obviously, the the original creation is obviously the hardest part, but to make the variations is just trying these really simple things to, to, to change everything about it while keeping the initial idea the same. And you hear this in a lot of different music, such as, you know, film music and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you say it's simple, but if it was easy... <laughs> Everyone, Everyone would, do would it. just be able to do it. Yeah. I think like, you know, it's just those, when I say simple, it's those things that we, we learn in, in school that didn't, we didn't really try and apply it in a practical way. There's different sort of expressions with music, like silence and, you know, different octaves and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, you don't really know, you're never really told how to apply it. And that's where Riff Rescue comes in. It shows you how to apply the musical expressions into changing what you've already written. Yeah. How have people reacted? Amazingly. Like a, a lot of the riff rescues we've had, the students have gone on, on to finish their songs and obviously they've ended up completely differently than, than what was submitted just because they saw the potential of what could be reached just by doing these, uh, I guess they're formulas in a way, just things to try. So they took the ideas that you gave them and then ran with them and developed those further? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they even just took what I wrote and that is allowed. The easy way out. I wouldn't say it was the easy way out. I just did the work for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the easy way out. Except John Brown write your riffs. Yeah. But I mean, that's the whole point of Riff Rescue. If I write something on there with one of your riffs, then you are welcome to use it in your song. I have, you know, I didn't write the initial idea. All I did was arrange it. So you, if, if you want to submit a riff to Riff Rescue have a riff written by me, it's yours. (laughs) 
That that is pretty sick. That's, but that's pretty awesome. if you don't want to take the easy way out, you can submit to Riff Rescue, get John's uh, ideas, and then see where you can take those. Yeah, it, it, it's an invaluable resource in my opinion. I mean, it's streamed live, so I'm completely on the spot while I'm doing this as well for all no the pressure. students. No pressure at all. So all the students can watch exactly what I'm doing. And that in itself for the one to four hours, depending on how long the Rift Rescue lasts, that is an absolute ton of information on how you can process your own songs. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite parts of Riff Hard for sure. I think it's one of the most valuable parts. I would wholeheartedly agree. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> but then again, I'm slightly biased. But yeah, it's amazing. You should come to Riffhard. Riffhard.com. All right, man. Talk to you next time. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Riffhard Podcast. We'll see you next week.